Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. Shout out to the uh, soccer team that... Uh, I think did beautifully uh, in the World Cup. I, they weren't so lucky this morning. They'll be sent home, but I think they represented us very, very well in the highest level of competition. Look, you know me. I'm an optimist. <laughs> a lifetime with a good seat in our own American political theater has taught me that our democracy is resilient and it's beloved. This week in Georgia, Americans stood in line for hours to vote. Shouldn't have had to, but they did. And over the decades, Americans have protested. They've been beaten. They've absorbed brutal beatings to expand that right. And over the centuries, Americans have fought and died to preserve and protect it. We don't practice mob rule here. We would we, we, we govern by laws enacted by popular will with protections for those in the minority and with judgments rendered by impartial courts and juries of our peers. This is the envy and the hope of people everywhere. And our system of justice under law, despite the current illegitimacy of our highest court, it seems to be holding. Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, who treasonously conspired to stop the certification of a presidential election, he's been convicted. Clearly, the oath that he kept was not to our Constitution or the American people. He'll die in jail. Um, Other courts have done their jobs, too. The, The outrageous partisan appointment of a special master to delay the investigation into Donald Trump's hoarding of government documents Uh, has been overturned. The attempt to subvert the election in Arizona was stopped. And yet, and yet, despite our overwhelming success in the last election, despite all that's true about our democracy, there is still a terrible disease doing it great damage. In Arizona, Carrie Lake will not concede to the will of the people. Instead, she copies the Trump playbook to undermine confidence in the integrity of elections. And let's not even talk about what Trump is saying. But but she's not alone um, in Arizona. Even let me read you from an opinion piece uh, that uh, was in the Arizona Republic just Tuesday. I'm going to read it right now. Okay, Uh, from the glass half full department, Maricopa County's vote to certify the November elect. November 8th election opens an entirely new grifting opportunity for the election denial industry. And who but our own state senator, Wendy Rogers, to lead the way. Within minutes of the Republican run, Maricopa County Board of Supervisors voting unanimously to certify the vote on Monday, Rogers had her handout. Quote, I'm Arizona Senator Wendy Rogers, and I will hold Maricopa County accountable for its election shenanigans, unquote. She wrote in her fundraising plea, help me get a new election for Maricopa. And by help, she means send her money. 
Rogers will head the newly created Senate Elections Committee in January, a job awarded to her by incoming Senate President Warren Peterson, one of the architects of the Senate's cyber ninja audit. Uh, Rogers repeatedly called for decertifying the 2020 election, an end to the state's wildly popular early voting program, the arrest of election officials for non-existent fraud, and an entire laundry list of loopy ideas that have made her a national rock star on the hard right and landed her millions in campaign cash from all across the land, never mind that her proposals went precisely nowhere when Republicans controlled the state. Now, suddenly, as Democrats prepare to take over as governor and attorney general, Rogers is vowing somehow to engineer a do-over of the 2022 election. That is, if you give her $35 or $60 or, heck, fork over 5300 your campaign. Well, that was fun, right? If Donald Trump has taught us anything, it's that greed drives a lot of the attack on our democracy. Greed and the ability to scare democracy-loving Americans into believing that they're under attack, usually by so-called others. Trump himself has amassed, I don't know, hundreds of millions in campaign contributions, money he didn't spend to help mainstream Republicans in the last cycle. And corporate greed led to the capture of the Supreme Court. That's what Senator Sheldon Whitehouse told us here a few weeks ago. And he walked us through the sordid history from the infamous Powell memo to the disastrous Citizens United case that flooded our political space with dark money. (laughs) Now the court is back in session and it wants to finish the job. This term, this term, they can finally kill off the Voting Rights Act. It's a disgrace, but that's what they're aiming to do. And they can create a new law based on a fringe legal theory, a theory they invited into the court unnecessarily called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, which will take control of elections from the people and give it to folks like Wendy Rogers, that uh, con woman I uh, read to you about from the Arizona Republic. And then there's, you know, I talk about this a lot, but it's worth it. Meanwhile, in Ohio, the land that democracy forgot, 15 illegally elected representatives are heading to Congress, tipping the balance to the GOP. (laughs) And that state's radically gerrymandered legislature is now moving to consolidate their power by pairing back citizens' initiatives. You know, citizens' initiatives... Uh, take place across the whole state. So the gerrymander doesn't impact the results. And of course, that's an outrage that cannot be countenanced by uh, those who lead hmm, government of the party, by the party, and for the party in that state. So they'd rather rule by fiat. We need, we need to remain hmm, alert, uh, vigilant, and engaged until we rid our nation of this terrible cancer that undermines our faith uh, in democracy and divides us from one another. But look, let us, and I know some of you are, get mad at me when I say this, but let us fight on our terms. We need to give the widest latitude to our fellow citizens for protesting the actions of government, even when we don't agree with them. Um, And by Uh, demonstrating to election deniers and, frankly, to ourselves, 
as well. The strength of values like tolerance, like acceptance, like love. We can have those values and be as tough as people who are angry all the time. We can have the full measure of our humanity and push back against people who would strip that from everyone else. All right. Well, happily, Democrats have proven faithful and up to the long fight, you know, and there are few Americans who demonstrate this better than my first guest, the spectacular organizer and head of the Wisconsin Dems, Ben Wickler. Ben, welcome back. And it's so great to be back with you in a moment that could be a moment of flaming wreckage for our democracy and instead is a moment that's a testament to how many Americans actually believe in having a government that's responsive to its people instead of an autocracy. Yeah, there was a lot to celebrate, and you were part of a lot to celebrate. But before we get right to that, I hope you were able to take a break and enjoy a quiet Thanksgiving. I had a great Thanksgiving uh, with one hiccup that I will I will tell you about in a second. But I my about forty two uh, family members all got together and ate much too much and had a wonderful wonderful time. So I appreciate the the kind thoughts on that. Um, the well, one hiccup, it's also just yeah. so important, right? I mean, I, I don't know what, who the right thinks you and I and others like us are, but we love this country and we love things, you know, these traditions of our country. Yeah. And I mean, I sort of feel like gratitude is an emotion that it's hard to hold gratitude and hate in your heart at the same time. (laughs) If we we could have a little bit more genuine American Thanksgiving uh, happening across the country, I think it would reduce the polarization and, you know, move us more towards being the kind of country we all want to be. Yeah. All right. So what was the hiccup? The hiccup was that it was a good hiccup. A Republican state senator, uh, announced her plan to retire early the day before Thanksgiving. And it meant that when the new state legislature is sworn in in January, Republicans will be one vote shy of a supermajority in the state Senate. And we held them off from a supermajority in the state assembly. And what that combination means is that the, at least for the first three months of the year next year, Republicans won't have the power to impeach which is one of the, the kind of uh, time wasting ridiculous things yeah. they do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so <laughs> it means that we have a special election for state Senate and a Supreme court race that I'll also want to talk about on April 4th that could, you know, shut Republicans out of a, of a way to abuse their power that would be terrifying for Wisconsinites. And that, so it was a, you know, a minor little political moment where I had to jump on the phone with a bunch of people during the Thanksgiving break, but it also, it was another thing to give thanks for. Republicans yeah. tried to rig our system so that they that a minority of voters could have unaccountable control over the state, and it is not working. Uh, so the midterm outcome in Wisconsin was not perfect, but it was stunningly good for Democrats and democracy. I, I think it's worth taking a minute and walking us through what you won and how close you came to winning even more. Absolutely. So I think the first critical thing is the context, which is that Wisconsin is so evenly divided that we almost always swing between 
uh, you know, a president from one party wins and then the other party wins everything in the midterms. The last time a Democrat has won a governor's race in Wisconsin, incumbent or not, when there was a Democratic president was 1962. And 60 years ago, that election, the president, JFK, had a 70 percent approval rating after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the Democratic candidate won by a single percentage point. So this year, with a Democratic president who does not have that kind of approval rating, although I think he's doing a great job, the the pendulum swing was almost mechanical. It was viewed by many, many, many people, independent observers, as nearly a lock for the GOP that they would get the governorship. in addition, Republicans gerrymandered our state legislative maps so aggressively that uh, analysts, uh, you know, national analysts thought that Republicans had a coin flip's chance of getting supermajorities in both chambers of our state legislature, which would mean that even if we did win the governor's race somehow, Republicans could override the governor's veto. And on top of that, Republicans flooded in money in the Senate race to the degree of uh, it was a $27 million spending gap. Uh, which was all of which was accounted for by two billionaire families, Dick and Liz Uline and Diane Hendricks. They put in $29 million to reelect Ron Johnson, who'd given them a giant tax cut and to beat Mandela Barnes. And a bunch of polls, I mean, uh, uh, in mid-October, the best poll in Wisconsin said that Mandela Barnes was down by seven points. So nationally, people just wrote off the Senate race. So that was the context going into Election Day. And... We have been at the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, all the independent and grassroots groups, the candidates' campaigns have been working incredibly hard, uh, in some cases, in the party's case, for years. We started planning the governor's campaign in the summer of 2019. Um, this was a, a huge effort to try to defy history. And, you know, as the election, as the results started to be counted, we did not know which way it was going to go. But by around midnight on election night, it became clear that all of those historical expectations had been blown out of the water. The governor not only won, but won by 3.4 points, which in Wisconsin is a landslide, triple his margin in the blue wave year of 2018. Our attorney general got reelected by 1.3 points in a year where Republicans tried to use crime as the defining issue of the election. In the state legislature, Republicans came breathtakingly, uh, the hold your breath close. Um, they came within 2,499 votes of getting dual chamber supermajorities. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, that's less than one-tenth of 1% one of the votes cast statewide. If they'd had those votes in the right districts, they would have supermajorities in both chambers now. And in the Senate race, despite being outspent by $27 million, we came within 26,000 votes of being the first state in which a, a Democratic challenger defeated a two-term incumbent Republican since 2008. That's the last time that happened. And we were the closest state in the country to, to defeating an incumbent Republican anywhere, despite this massive spending gap. So although it, it kills me every day that Mandela Barnes is not going to the Senate and Ron Johnson's going back, he demonstrated his effectiveness as a candidate. The state demonstrated that you know, he could, could beat the odds. Um, I wish with all my heart that we had won, but I feel so proud of him and everyone who worked on that campaign and everyone who poured themselves into volunteering and supporting because we came closer than anyone thought was possible. Well, and, and he not only should he be proud of his campaign on his own behalf, um, but, you know, he helped generate the turnout that pushed all those other victories you've talked about. That's exactly right. And it's, it's worth noting how real that is. In 2018, 
Tammy Baldwin won by 11 percentage points at a landslide because once it was clear that she was going to win, uh, Republicans basically gave up in the Senate race. They stopped spending money on ads. They pulled out completely. And she, her gap, which was you know a meaningful gap, it, it became a giant gap. And that helped every Democrat across the state win in the in the midterms by very mm-hmm. narrow margins. Governor Ever mm-hmm. won by one point one percentage points. Attorney General won by zero point six percentage points. And in this election, if people had given up on Mandela Barnes, if Mandela Barnes had given up uh, a month out from the election, he could have lost in that kind of landslide, and that would have made it almost impossible to win the other statewide races. But instead, he refused to give up, and he fought so so hard. He made a hundred stops in the last sixteen days of that campaign, <laughs> and because of that, the, the, the margin narrowed beyond what just about any independent observer expected, and it helped to propel victories up and down the ballot. So this was a giant team effort, and you know every, nobody gave up. Everyone gave it one hundred ten percent. And because of that, democracy survived in America's tipping point state. Well, you now have two senators who could not be more different. I mean, Tammy Baldwin just led the effort to protect marriage from what we know is a coming attack from the Supreme Court. And Ron Johnson, I I think you don't want to really talk about him too much, but I mean, you know, he's back there for six more years of sowing confusion and fighting for kleptocrats. It is. It's such a staggering divide, and I think marriage equality is a good example. You know, the the Respect for Marriage Act that Tammy Baldwin led and got Republicans to cross over and vote for, it codifies the right for people to marry who they love, whether you know, no matter their gender, no matter their race. Things that now are under threat because of these extremists on the Supreme Court. Ron Johnson initially signaled that he might support that before the election, and then eventually came out against it and said that he'd only said that he might support it in order to get the reporters off his back, which is, it's just the most grindingly cynical kind of nihilistic politics imaginable, as well as being, I mean, just really gross from the perspective. I, of I'm sorry, Ben, I like love. it. I like it that he said that, you know, sometimes <laughs> a politician looks in the mirror and they just tell you who they are. And, you know, the rest gets easier after that. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, you know I, I I take your point. Uh, I would rather that he occasionally be honest about what he's what he's actually doing in this world. Well, but, but so I mean, speaking of honest, that word truth comes to mind. You want to tell me about truth pack? Oh God! So the, well, this is the thing that the, these two billionaires who uh, got a half billion dollar tax deduction thanks to Ron Johnson personally authoring a tax provision that benefited them and himself, incidentally. Um, they took a little chunk of the money that he saved them and poured $29 million into the biggest single candidate super PAC in the country in any race, mm-hmm. uh, specifically to, to repay the guy who'd enriched them. And you know, they, they personally accounted for more than the entire spending gap in the race. Mandela Barnes would have outspent Ron Johnson if it wasn't for these two billionaires. Um, so they got, they got their payday. Uh, I, I will say, though, that in Tammy Baldwin's case, she is now – up in 2024. So she's in cycle. And one of the ways to look at the results just now, every incumbent senator from both parties got reelected in who was, who was up in 2022. And the incumbency advantage is on Tammy Baldwin's side this time. Um, if, if you add two points to the incumbent, then without incumbency having an advantage, Mandela Barnes would have won by one point and Tony Evers would have won by one point. Um, But it it means that we have a real fighting chance to ensure that Tammy Baldwin returns for for another term in the Senate. And that's something I'm excited about. 
I am too, but it's going to be a hard cycle because of the who's up all over the country for Democrats. Absolutely. We, we have to hold this seat to have a prayer of, of any shot at holding the majority. Um, let me turn back for a moment to your uh, state legislature and this special election. I think um, what is a what does a special election look like? You know, where is it? What kind of district and how you know, how should people start to think about that? So the special election is in the Milwaukee suburbs, which is good news for Democrats because those have been trending Democratic. The biggest swing in the Senate race between 2016, when uh, Russ Feingold lost to Ron Johnson in their second matchup versus 2022, was in Ozaukee County, which is the suburb north of Milwaukee that used to be the most Republican county in the state of Wisconsin, and it moved eight points towards the Democratic column. Mm-hmm. So this, the state Senate race is uh, includes a big chunk of Ozaukee County and Washington and Waukesha counties. It's a district that Republicans gerrymandered to tilt even a little more Republican than it was. So at this point, it's a Republican plus seven district, meaning that in a 50-50 year, you'd expect it to go Republican by seven points. But it's a special election, and those are very different. We have won special elections in redder districts than that in favorable conditions. Of course, we've also lost you know, bluer uh, district special elections. So I, I think it's a race where it's worth giving it a very, very strong shot but we don't yet know, you know, we don't know how it'll turn out. You, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So we're going to give that a shot. At the same time, there's an even bigger fight happening on April 4th of 2023. I, I want to get to the day. Supreme Court, but not yet. Because yeah. okay. we're going to have to take a commercial break, and then I want to come back. To okay, that's fair but but so stay with this one for a bit. Do you know who the candidates are yet? So on the Democratic side, there are folks thinking about it, but no one has thrown their hat in the ring yet. One person um, who is a... Uh, a Democrat who is a state representative in that district uh, has decided not to run. So we are looking for a great person to be a candidate there. On the Republican mm-hmm. side, State Representative Dan Knodel has announced that he's running. There's some other Republicans who might, and they might have a kind of extremist on extremist mm-hmm. primary. So uh, I certainly hope all the Republicans who are thinking about it throw their hats in the ring. And uh, I, we're, if you're listening right now, you live in that district and you're thinking about mounting a run. Um, let's talk. All right. So on that note, um, we'll take a, a break. Um, it may be a hair longer because I missed one earlier. Um, and when we come back, let's turn to the Supreme Court race. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Well, that's true. But you're also listening to Ben Wickler, chair of, of the Wisconsin D- Dems and one of the best organizers we could ask for in this fight. All right, Ben, we were um, about to turn to the uh, all-important Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. And as you tell me about it, it's an important point that is so hard to make in a political campaign for a court seat. Our our justice system depends on having independent and judicially-minded jurists. Because of political campaigns, and largely because the GOP says it's so, Americans think that they're Democratic courts and they're Republican courts and that the decisions are just about which side wins. In fact, Democrats are campaigning for the whole idea of an independent judiciary, what what Hamilton argued so vociferously for in the Federalist Papers. And the Republicans are arguing for a captured court. So as you talk about the race, 
talk about that too. I I want to just underscore and emphatically agree with what you just said. The Wisconsin State Supreme Court right now is really like an extension of Fox News Channel. Uh, they make decisions. Uh, at one point, they banned drop boxes for absentee ballots in a decision that compared Wisconsin to Syria, um, and, and, and claiming that it was a democracy by it was a system, you know, election system ruled by fiat because there had been accommodations for people during the COVID pandemic. It is a it is a laughingstock among constitutional experts and judicial scholars. It really is. Uh, you know, a kind of a, a blight on the idea of the rule of law. And the people who are running that, that I would support believe that we should have rule of law, equal justice under the law. We should have a, a judiciary that actually looks at what's in the Constitution and what's passed by the legislature and makes decisions on that basis instead of advancing a partisan Republican agenda. And that's what's at stake. Uh, now, Wisconsin has the most gerrymandered legislative maps in the country. The, the Texas is number two. Number you, know, you can you can go down the list. Ohio's pretty close. Yeah, worst. Ohio's yeah, they're they're one of the worst in the country as well. Yeah. Um, but the there's a in the, you uh, guys are right uh, up national you guys are there. Top. Yep. We're, the worst. Yep. The worst. The yeah. worst. And Wisconsin's constitution uh, demands that people have equal voting rights. And if you look at the text of our Constitution and you look at the maps, they actually don't line up very well. And there are states like Pennsylvania where Supreme Courts have thrown out gerrymandered maps on, on the constitutional basis. The U.S. Supreme Court had the opportunity to, but they said, no, this should be left to the states. But the, the state in, in Wisconsin, it's not that these maps were drawn by a state legislature and then passed muster with a state Supreme Court. Our state Supreme Court chose these maps we're the only state where the state Supreme Court chose a completely partisan gerrymander uh, this century. That's the, there's a, a scholar I was tweeting back and forth with who was looking across the country. We were the only state that they could find, at least since 2000, that's how far back they looked, where a state legislature chose a set of maps designed to maximize the electoral performance for just one party. Everywhere else, when it gets to the courts, they at least try to choose some other kind of basis for, for, for deciding what the maps would be. So it is, it is so bad. But there's one Republican, and I say Republican advisedly, knowing that this is a nonpartisan court, there's one Republican state Supreme Court justice who has announced her retirement, which means that on April 4th of 2023, there's an open seat. And in Wisconsin, Supreme Court seats almost never, you all, incumbents almost always win re-election. There's only two in the last half century that have not won re-election in, in our state Supreme Court. But open seats, they're a toss-up. And on April 4th, an open seat currently held by a conservative will be up. And there are now two very, very right-wing conservatives running for that spot. And there are two more independent jurists, current sitting judges, who are running for that spot as well. And what happens in that race will determine whether the state Supreme Court keeps choosing ultra gerrymandered maps or even potentially strikes down the current maps and demands fair ones, which could lead to all kinds of changes of the actual restoration of democracy in Wisconsin. The, the state Supreme Court race will determine whether we have a state Supreme Court that keeps shrinking and striking down voting rights as the current court has before the 2024 presidential or a Supreme Court who follows the law and constitution, 
expands voting rights to back where they, their lawmakers intended for them to be in the state that is the most pivotal for the 2024 presidential race. And the state Supreme Court will rule on our 1849, the year 1849, abortion ban that starts mm-hmm. at zero weeks. It is a total abortion ban with no exceptions for rape or incest. That's in lower courts right now. We will come in front of the Supreme Court sometime later next year. So much is at stake for Wisconsin in this one race really a path to being a self-perpetuating minority rule state because of gerrymandering or a path to becoming a responsive democracy again. It hinges on April 4th. Okay. You will have your work cut out for you again. (laughs) (laughs) I I will say the great thing is that this is offense. This is a chance to actually make things better and not just prevent things from becoming worse. So the, the, I mean, you know, the the risks, there's also a prevention aspect to it because we've seen what this court is willing to do to to crack down on methods of voting that are used by Democrats. Uh, And it could be very bad. It it, it would be scary if Republicans do hold their majority. But if we win, it actually opens a path to Wisconsin to becoming the kind of state where a majority of voters can choose the the fate of our laws and the the kind of policies we should have and whether those values, whether the values of the people of the state should be reflected in the government of the state. And that opportunity, that's the kind of state I want my kids to grow up in. It is, you can taste how close that possibility is. And that's the reason there's a lot of joy going into this election, not just uh, prevention of a disaster. Yeah, I know you do not underestimate the other side. But in Ohio, the Supreme Court did rule. They ruled that the Republican legislature's maps were unconstitutional. And the legislature told the court to go jump in Lake Erie and ran elections on those maps. And 15 uh, uh, members of Congress are showing up, flipping the balance from Democrat to Republican. And they won in districts that are where the elections were illegal, according to their own Supreme Court. So the the, the folks we're up against are are not, uh, they don't respect the rule of law when it doesn't go their way, that's for sure. So it's it's enormously important to win the Supreme Court, but your fight won't be over even after you get done. The fight, the fight, politics is like pickleball. It is a life sport. Uh, You're never too old for, for, for fighting in a democracy. That said, in Wisconsin, if the legislature and the governor can't agree, then the courts actually decide how the maps should be drawn. And they can appoint a special master to draw the maps, or they can adopt a set of maps someone has proposed. So it's not like they just kick it back until the legislature produces acceptable maps. They actually just decide what the maps will be. And wow. every other – yeah, so so Wisconsin, the state legislature couldn't pull the trick that they've done in Ohio. The, the Supreme Court, if we have one that believes in democracy, it can choose a set of maps that allow voters to have equal weight in, in determining the majority in the state legislature. Um, they, I'm sure Republicans will find other dirty tricks to, to pull, and we will fight those when they come up. Yeah, but one of them is a clear path. One of them will be to go to the, that other Supreme Court in Washington on this so-called independent state legislature doctrine so that you could win the Supreme Court race and they could then say, yeah, well, the Supreme Court has nothing to say about any of this. So, uh, uh, yes, there's, uh, there, yeah. there are perils in our future, no matter what we do, but it, but I would rather go into that fight with a state Supreme Court that believes in the rule of law than one that does not. I would too. I would too. And um, you, you have a, you have a good chance in part because 
Zoom out and talk about organizing more generally. What made efforts like yours or Lavora Barnes in Michigan so successful? How did you build so many on-ramps for people to participate at whatever level they could? So Wisconsin and, and Michigan, uh, we have something in common as state parties. I'm, I'm very close to LaVar Barnes, who's the Michigan State Party Chair. We actually decided also fabulous. Yep. She is amazing. In both of our states, after Trump won in 2016, our state parties decided to do things differently. Instead of laying everyone off and shutting down until a few months before the next November election, in both states, the state party launched a year-round grassroots neighborhood team-based organizing program patterned on the Obama organizing model, where neighbors talk to their neighbors, and launched those not just in a lead-up to an election, but actually to run every single month. So in both states, we've had continuous organizing from the spring of 2017 to now, uh, you know, six years later. That has made a gigantic difference because it means that when there's a local school board race or a state Supreme Court race like this one or a race for superintendent of public instruction, those teams are on the ground. They're still there. You preserve the relationships between activists and, and between the volunteers and the voters. You, there's turnover always in, a, you know, in an organizing staff, although we have some people who have been around since then. But the neighborhood teams are constant. The, unless people move out of the area, there's no reason to ever go join a different team. So when an organizer comes on the staff, they learn from the local teams about how best to win in that community. That effort has allowed us to not only build a stronger and stronger on the ground presence, but also to add different elements. So we've added distributed organizing where someone who's not in Wisconsin or or in an area that doesn't yet have a team can start uh, helping out on a solo basis. Virtual organizing, which is uh, something we learned in the COVID pandemic, especially to support people with Mm -hmm. absentee ballots calling in, uh, you know, being able to, to help people move through the system through text and phone calls, relational organizing, where you go not based on geography, but based on your personal network of contacts. We now have staff across all those different organizing methodologies that, were, that are part of an overall plan so that anyone who has time and a willingness to help, we can plug them in in a way that they can be useful and the way they can, they can help the most. If they're in a if they don't know a single Wisconsinite, we have them call strong Democrats who might forget to vote. If there's someone who has a web of relationships in a community that's you know split, they may go out and do persuasion, knocking on people's doors. We will we will take people's time and their talents and give them the highest impact way to make a difference. And what happens when you do that is that they can see the impact of their work and they keep coming back. And there's a snowball effect where it gets bigger and bigger as it goes. Uh, you know, Michigan. They won their Supreme Court majority a few years ago, and that mm-hmm. made the path to now becoming a blue trifecta. We are we have mm-hmm. a, a little ways to go on that, but we are on that march as well. You can turn a state blue if you have that kind of year-round, on-the-ground capacity uh, and, a, and a unified strategy that understands the role of all the different folks involved in that election. And that is exactly what we're working to do. Yeah, but it, uh, it also um, has an impact that is that is not about politics. It's almost something that Tocqueville wrote about. Once you have people involved in this political process, they are talking to their neighbors. They're talking about their community's challenges and their community's opportunities. And they're trying to figure out ways to uh, strengthen their community in in every part of a state. You, You end up building 
the raw material of viable communities through a political process this way. It's a really amazing thing to see. I love it. I when I was running for chair, I went from you know county party to county party, neighborhood team to neighborhood team, and it. I sort of fell in love with democracy and its practice at this in this very Tocquevillian way of these associations at every level. Um, you go to a meeting, and it's not just the Senate race that people are talking about. They're also talking about you know there's a vacancy on the city council, and who here wants to run, and we'll all get behind you. And they're you know figuring out ways to to pitch in and, and build from the ground up it becomes self-propelling and it, it yields candidates who are deeply grounded in their communities. And it, it means that campaigns actually get valuable intelligence from the grassroots. And so they, they honor and respect the grassroots. And there were years in the past where candidates didn't trust the state party. They didn't trust each other. So everyone tried to build their own field organizing efforts and they would yep. compete for the same volunteers. I worked on a campaign that was like that when I was in high school, that doesn't happen in Wisconsin anymore. Uh, we 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 build in a in a unified way, and you know there's always lots of ways that we can get better, and we're striving to do that. We're doing listening sessions all over Wisconsin to learn everything we can from the election that just happened. But it's in service of a, of a vision that everyone agrees on, which is that we should organize everywhere, all the time, year-round, elections, big and small. And when we do that, we help to build the fabric of a of a civic community and a civic life in our yeah. state that goes beyond politics. So, so I'm hoping that all of you who are listening in Illinois are paying attention because Illinois, a reliably blue state, is not organized this way. I mean, it is a we're reliably blue for other reasons, but we are missing this this um, quality of campaigning across the state that improves the, that strengthens community while it does political work. We're still in the bickering with each other phase. And Ben, I think that's part of the transition from the Democratic Party's historic reliance on on, on big city mayors and unions for 100 percent of its organizing. And now, while unions are still a big part of uh, the coalition, that's not where all the energy is. I mean, part of that is because of the decades long assault on unions by the right. Wisconsin has been a very proud union state, the birthplace of public sector unions. And is now a right to work, so-called right to work state where Republicans can smash unions willy nilly. We will only be better off if we can restore the power of more workers to organize in their workplaces and, and for democracy beyond their workplaces as well. Um, and that said, you're right that, that the goal of, of creating a party that can help to lift all boats, um, that's something that we, we now have, have, by necessity, have built and practiced in, in Wisconsin. And I know that there are folks in, in Illinois who are very excited about this as well. And I look forward to working yep. over the next couple of years with folks because I think the, the opportunity is huge and it can affect uh, democracy positively in so many ways, even if you're in a state where you're, you're winning your statewide races reliably. Yeah, I, yeah, and I think Democrats around the country are waking up to this and the sort of dual mission of our politics, which is to win elections, but also to build community. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, I, I want to take one more break, and then I want to turn to you to to, to – I want to zoom out and talk about some of the country issues with you just a little bit. We'll be right back. I'm talking with Ben Wickler, um, a fabulous chair of the Wisconsin Dems. Stay with us. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. All right. And for those of you who are just joining us, I'm talking with Ben Wickler, chair of the Wisconsin Downs. So, Ben, you, you – 
I mean, nobody is as good an observer of American politics. So I, I feel like I can ask you questions that extend past Wisconsin. I, I, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I am not, I, I, I shouldn't say it out loud, I shouldn't say it on the radio, but I'm going to do both. I'm not that unhappy that the GOP will now have control of the United States House of Representatives with a tiny majority. I think the country will quickly learn the difference between what Democrats accomplished with a slim majority and the chaos Republicans are going to sow with theirs. And I think going into, I mean, we did so much in the 117th Congress, and we have a few weeks to do a little bit more. Um, Those benefits will start to show up in the next couple of years. And having this chaos, um, if if we had everything, it would be harder for us to win in 24. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that thesis. So from the... I often say to our team that the only measure of our work working at a state party or in politics is the impact that it has on people's lives. Winning is not an end in itself. Winning is just a means to actually be able to make a positive difference. And when I think through that prism, there's so much urgent work that needs to be done that will not happen because Republicans have the House. And it's, it's worth you know, recognizing, like, we could have had the child tax credit. We could have had... The, the, the care economy for child care for, yeah, there's, there, I mean, there's so there's voting rights reforms, voting rights. Demo- yeah. the, the end of democracy subversion. Uh, the, there's, so it, it is a deeply, deeply tragic that those things are not going to happen in the next two years. And yeah. at the same time, you know, the sum of our work is the, is the impact that we have on people's lives over the next decade, over the rest of our lives. And I think that you're right. Politically, Republicans, uh, I mean, they ran on in, uh, inflation and uh, gro- you know, grocery prices and gas prices, but they're making clear already that what they're going to use their power for in the House is to investigate the son of the president. I mean, th- they have no agenda whatsoever. And they're not proposing any constructive measures uh, of any kind. And I think that that will hurt them politically. And I think that does make it more likely that we win re-election in 2024. And my, my hope, my, my deep hope is that in 2024, we can defy, once again, defy history and expand the Senate majority and flip the House. Yep. Yep. Because if we do that, then we could actually, in that moment, we could pass these reforms that we've been working on for so long. I hate to say that we have to wait two more years, but that's, that is definitely what it looks like. And I do, I do think it creates a clear contrast and a foil in a way that we would not otherwise have had. Uh, Republicans have an opportunity now that I, I can almost guarantee that they will fail. Um, they could demonstrate that they're a party that without Trump actually in the lead, that, that, that they're a party that takes governing seriously. But every single signal that they're sending suggests that they're only still only concerned with power and with owning the libs going after and trying to humiliate Democrats um, bullying essentially as their only political principle. And that's something that is repellent to most voters, even if it allows them to win a, a primary in their gerrymandered congressional districts, it is not something that wins a majority of the public now. Yeah. Vengeance isn't a deeply held American trait. <laughs> It just isn't. And this is this is where they are. 
it's really striking. There's a general kind of view that I think is correct in political science, which is that to force a change within a party, the only thing that really does it is losing repeatedly. And that parties change course, you know, not based on principled arguments, but, but based on discovering that what they're doing is not working. I My theory about Republicans in Wisconsin, they're a party that is extreme, that is willing to do anything for power. And I think the only way we really change that is by making clear to them that that strategy is such an electoral dead end and will result in their being completely shut out of power in the state that they have to change their strategy to be able to appeal to the majority of voters. Now, you might think that after Republicans lost, uh, based on Trumpist vengeance politics, in 2018 and in 2020 and in 2022 in critical places that maybe that would be three successive election defeats would be enough to lead them to make that kind of internal reckoning actually happen. But we see no evidence of that whatsoever. So it looks like it'll take yet another thunderous catastrophic loss for Republicans, which we can't take for granted. It is our job now to generate that defeat for them Mm -hmm. for 2024. But at some point, if this strategy fails, they will have to take a look at the mirror at long last. And maybe we will actually have a responsible opposition party to argue about substance with and not just uh, not just, uh, you know, try to demonstrate to voters that they have no vision other than uh, exacting pain on their enemies. Yeah. I mean, you and I aren't Republicans, so we, we're not the best uh, people that have this conversation. But I, I think their base by sort of years of courting this angry base, base ate them. And I just don't think conservatives, not crazy Americans, not anti-democratic Americans, just Americans who are who are on the right on some issues, I don't think they have a party anymore. And it's certainly not this Republican Party. And and I don't know that they can get it back. I, I mean, they may have to start something new. I don't think they can get this one back. It's more like a, uh, you know, like a European parliamentary party. It's got ideological purity. It's 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 not big tent. It's very narrow in its focus, and its focus is, you know, just rage. I think that's right, but I also you can detect a different kind of you. You can imagine what a different kind of Republican party would look like. You know, there's a used there's to have one. within the Republican. Yeah, we used to have one, and and there are, there are some advocates within the Republican Party they occasionally flirt with things like, you know, pro-family policy, expanding child tax mm-hmm. credits, and you know, doing things to make it easier to raise kids. And they have this this fantasy that they're a workers' party now, but they could actually there are you know workers' parties on the right in Europe, and Republicans could put meat on the bones and do some of those things. They just refuse to actually do that. All they have yeah. is. You know, attack on trans children and and chaos. Um, you know, chaos. They have this constant they don't govern. chaos. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, our my goal is to help them help themselves by defeating them so resoundingly that they have no choice but to figure out what voters actually want, as opposed to um, using this pure negative partisanship and, and chaos strategy. Well, I really don't like talking about Donald Trump, but I have to just for a moment. He recently, I think he, I think if I read his latest statement properly, he's calling for an end to the United States Constitution so he can be reinstated. I mean, it, he can't, but we, like, if I'm reading it right, he, he, Republicans can't possibly 
countenance that, can they? Uh, you are reading it right. Uh, his tweet says, uh, a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulation, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. That's his, He just wrote that. And he's asking people to choose between him and the Constitution. And have, I guess he thinks people will choose him. I'm he's, not worried about that, are you? I'm not worried about that. I'm, <laughs> I'm not worried about that. Americans I, love our country. This is Even the ones you and I disagree with. Look to this. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's the uniting theme for, for both parties. It's a, it's a, we have different visions of what that love looks like, but that is that really is the through line in this country. And Trump has come out and just said the thing that has always been kind of implicit in his arguments. Uh, yeah. I, I think. I mean, yeah, he's, he said it. So now we need to decide what the rest of us do about it. All right. Well, hard work, as you always do, is what we're going to do about it. Smart work and work that just brings people in that says, you want this fight? I'll show you how you can be part of it. It's really great to see. Um, before I let you go, do you have time for novels? Have you seen the new Black Panther movie? I mean, <laughs> do you know? My my son Mac turned 11 on November 17th, so right after the mm-hmm. election, and I took the afternoon off work and picked him up from school and went directly to the theater to watch Wakanda Forever, and it was great. So I'm looking forward, to, especially after April 4th, to more afternoons like that. Um, and I, you know, the the goal for for, for politics is to create a a country where everyone can enjoy the richness of life and and treasure time with people that they love. So I think it's those of us doing the work need to remind ourselves that we should do the same thing uh, whenever we can. Whenever we can. I think that's right. And we have to remind ourselves, too, that most people, thank God, don't pay as much attention to this as you and I do. Um, if they did, we, nobody would make those good movies because they'd all be busy doing <laughs> this trench work. So, I, I think that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben, thank, thank you, you so as always. Uh, I know everybody loves uh, hearing what you have to say, and it is always um, uh, really welcome. Really appreciate it. Grateful for the chance to join you. Have a great weekend. You too. All right, everybody, that was Ben Wickler, chair of the Wisconsin Dems. Um, We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we are going to turn to the land that democracy forgot, and that's Ohio. We'll We'll be back. Stay with us. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and as I said, I'm going to turn um, to David uh, David DeWitt, who is the editor-in-chief of the Ohio Capital Journal, who uh, has joined us from time to time to understand what's going on in that state. Hi, David. Hey, Edwin. Thanks for having me. Listen, I, I referred to Ohio right before the break as the land democracy forgot. And I that, that may not be fair, but um, I, I keep coming back to this because I want our listeners really to understand it. Uh, you've sent 15 people to the Congress of the United States who were not duly elected. Their districts were ruled unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court, you know, and the legislature just ignored it. And now that same super majority, but not representative of the state is trying to get rid of citizens initiatives, right? Which, which don't happen to be gerrymandered because the whole state gets to vote on them. What's going on? 
Oh boy, Edwin. I mean, it's uh, it's a mess as always. So as you uh, pointed out, since August 2021, we've had uh, state Republican lawmakers, including both executive office holders, the governor, the secretary of state, and the state house leaders, defy a bipartisan Supreme Court majority to force Ohio voters to cast ballots in unconstitutionally gerrymandered districts for both the U.S. Congress and the State House. Um, the court ruled against them seven times, and they ignored the court entirely. So they've, in that instance, they've, you know, uh, flouted the rule of law, flouted the authority of the courts and the checks and balances, the very basic checks and balances of the American system of government. They've flouted the voters who passed redistricting reform by 71% and 75%. They've flouted a bipartisan Supreme Court, and they rigged the elections for themselves with gerrymandering. And it worked. They had a 64-seat uh, supermajority in gerrymandered districts previously. After the election, now they have a 67-seat majority. And this is a state, Ohio is a Republican state, but we're about like a 54 55% Republican state. We're not at 65 to 70 percent Republican state. And that's the gerrymandering that they have. And this is the key component here with what they're doing now, because we are a 55 percent Republican state. But that means that what they're doing, what they're proposing to do now, they're trying to put on the May primary ballot uh, an amendment to the Ohio Constitution that will raise the threshold four amendments to the Ohio Constitution to 60%. This is not uncommon throughout the nation that you have these supermajority thresholds and uh, mm -hmm. for amendments to various state constitutions. But in Ohio, after this two years of illegal gerrymandering and this consolidation of power, it would be extraordinarily dangerous for Ohio voters to hurt their own ability to hold these lawmakers accountable. I mean, what we've seen here is these Republicans standing athwart democracy, athwart history, and even athwart Teddy Roosevelt, who spoke at the 1912 Ohio Convention that installed these citizen initiatives, referendums, and amendment uh, powers of democracy. And now... Republicans, they control every statewide administrative office, governor, secretary of state, attorney general, auditor and treasurer, as well as both the Ohio House and the Ohio Senate under super gerrymandered supermajorities and a majority on the Ohio Supreme Court. I mean, with these lawmakers continuing to create extremist laws that polls show strong majorities of Ohioans don't want, for voters to relinquish their own last remaining check, the power of a popular majority of voters themselves, I mean, it would be insane. But that is what they're asking voters to do as they try to shore up whatever last remaining pieces of power they don't have a stranglehold on. So you're seeing them go after voters, and you're also seeing them go after the State Board of Education because they lost a couple seats to the Democrats there, and Democrats took control over the Board of Education. And so they're trying to strip the Board of Education of all its powers and give them to the governor. And then the other thing they're going after is the Ohio Elections Commission. They're trying to remove a lot of the authorities and standards for the Ohio Elections Commission 
so because <laughs> the sponsor of that bill went on a rant in the legislature about how this is all a personal act that he's grinding because of an investigation into him that he didn't like. So you see this full frontal assault on multiple level levels just continuing to destroy democracy in Ohio in every way they can. I mean, I, I, it's just so disheartening. And I know that the Republican, I think she is still, but she's leaving, um, uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, leader, the, the yeah. Chief Justice. Yeah, Maureen um, O'Connor. Said she was leaving in order to join the fight against gerrymandering somehow, and she said that that the court did not have the power to enforce what was in the Constitution. And that, I, to me, that sounds like another citizens' referendum that clarifies what the citizens already did to put in place power to enforce this provision of the Constitution, which of course the Republicans can't abide by. Oh, right, right. They can't stand by and let, you know, the citizens assert their right to have fair districts because that would ruin their gerrymandering. And then they wouldn't be able to pass their extremist laws that they've promised to extremist groups. Um, who fund their when, do the, when do the but, citizens of your state, when, when is the pain so great that they rise up? Because they're, you know, you're going to have all the anti-choice stuff. You already have uh, because no one's accountable, you have this crazy corruption, whether it's through, you know, this ridiculous uh, uh, fake charter school thing that has been one of the biggest scandals in the country in your state. Or, you know, for my whole life, there's been uh, public utility corruption in Ohio. I mean, the quality of life in your state goes down. The competitiveness of your state for things like um, uh, corporate headquarters goes down um, when it's that corrupt. And when do people say, like, enough? That's a great question. And, you know, I sometimes I I very often wonder that myself. How much pain is it going to take? How much suffering is it going to take before people decide that they shouldn't just be voting blindly for party? And they should be voting for the, the things that impact their lives and make their lives better and stop this pain and suffering. Um, I want to go back to what you said about Maureen O'Connor. Uh, Maureen O'Connor is a lifelong Republican, a prominent Republican in Ohio. And she was part of the bipartisan majority that shot down the maps. Ohio Republicans wanted to impeach her for doing so. Um, they talked about it openly. Secretary of State Frank LaRose even mentioned it on the campaign trail. And so what's happened since she's being forced out of retirement due to age. She has said that she wants to get in on the action of bringing a new citizen initiative to the ballot to fix gerrymandering because it wasn't fixed mm-hmm. this time. And mm-hmm. I think... I think, honestly, you need to kick the politicians out of the room and get an independent commission. Every study I've seen shows that while independent commissions aren't perfect, they do a heck of a lot better job than the politicians do when they're drawing maps. So I think that's what Ohio voters need to do. They do. I mean, David, Michigan, it made a huge difference in Michigan. I live in Illinois, and let's, let's be honest, Illinois is a democratically gerrymandered state. Right. Not as radically as as your state or Wisconsin, but it's a Democratic jam. All of us are better off. All of us 
if we do if we try and make the map making less partisan and more reflect them in the way that gives the voters more power. Absolutely. I'm t- I'm entirely against Democratic gerrymandering, too. I'm against all gerrymandering because I think it's a fundamental poison. We're supposed to be a representative government. If you're manipulating things so that you're pay- the politicians are picking the voters and the voters aren't pay- picking the politicians, you are no longer a representative government. That's a fundamental attack on the idea of what American government's supposed to be. It needs to be eliminated, but I can't control other states. All I can do is talk yeah. about what's going on here. But what's going well, on here is absolutely atrocious. Yeah, you have. Thing, I want to note, O'Connor announced that she's going to do this citizen's ballot initiative. And then Ohio is one of the worst abortion bans in the nation. It's temporarily yeah. paused by court, but... It's the one that forced the 10-year-old to leave state after being raped uh, to get abortion care. On November 10th, abortion rights advocates said they are planning to bring a ballot initiative from citizens to protect reproductive health care. Exactly one week later, on November 17th, Secretary of State LaRose announced this plan to make it harder for these types of initiatives to pass. And I just happened to look up the stats. He wants to raise the bar to 60%. In Kansas, we all remember voters protected access to abortion care. They did so with 59% support. Mm-hmm. But Frank LaRose wants us to believe that this is all coincidence. It, yeah, anything, well, it tells us that Ohio Republicans know that a majority of voters are not on their side when it comes to illegal gerrymandering and extremist abortion bans, and a host of other issues, most prominently gun laws. So they want to manipulate things so that only a supermajority can stop them. I mean, in other words, they feel like they can beat citizens by convincing 41 percent to vote against them, but not 51 percent. So they want minority rule again in another way. Yeah. So of the party, by the party and for the party. Right. And as opposed to the people. Mm -hmm. But that, that I thought was Xi Jinping's thought. You know, maybe it's Frank LaRose's, too, but it's not it's not quintessentially American thought. But even when 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 um, autocrats, oligarchs uh, like Xi Jinping uh, get part one party rule, they, they find, as as we're seeing all over China now, that if they push people far enough, they're going to react. And I think your Republican Party is pushing Ohioans. I know they are they are still partisan and they're still Republican. I thought Tim Ryan ran a good campaign, but J.D. Vance is your senator. I don't understand that, but yeah. I get it, I guess. But um, but at some point, there's going to be enough distance between the lived reality of people in the state and the and the actions and the diktat and the words of the autocrats who are who are really ruling from a, a smaller and smaller minority when it comes to the decision At some point somebody's going to say you know what I, i'm not I'm, i can't do this anymore i i have to imagine so what what i fear <laughs> and what i see what's happening in the data um is that ohio outside of the city of columbus and the greater columbus area Outside of everybody's that, leaving throughout the rest of the state. Yeah, we're growing older. We're we're leave, young people are leaving the state in droves. They don't want to be here. Uh, Your best talent is coming this. to my city of Chicago. 
There's so many young, talented Ohioans coming to Chicago. And I want to tell you, as a Chicagoan, I'm grateful for every one of them. But it's not good for Ohio. No, I mean it's just gonna it's just gonna continue this tr- all of these trends. And you mentioned the education scandals. For ten years, we've had education scandals, hundreds of millions of dollars ripped away from public education and funneled to for-profit private schools, religious schools, and others. And what's happened in education over that time is that we used to rank, um, we used to rank like. Uh, around the middle of the pack in education. And now we're one of the worst states in education in the entire country. We're one of the least educated states in the entire country. I mean, if you look, we're in the bottom 15 uh, of the least educated states in Ohio. And so, yeah, I would love for people to wake up and realize that if they want to better their lives, and they want to better the lives of their neighbors and their families, they have to demand a government that is responsive to them and that that does what they want them to do. Because these issues are, you know, the people are for uh, good public education. We've had an unconstitutional education system for 24 years uh, since the DeRolf case in the late 90s. And the lawmakers have refused to do anything about the inequitable um, funding of public education when we all know that the biggest achievement gap in education is directly correlated to poverty. And not only that, but we know the best practices to fix that early childhood education uh, before school care, after school extracurricular activities, giving students four, three square meals a day, giving them well-rounded education with arts and sports and everything else. We know how to fix this, but we refuse to invest in it. And so when does the pain get enough? That's, I swear I ask myself that question all the time because I see it and it's heartbreaking. One in five Ohio children are going hungry. We have 700,000 Ohioans in drastic food insecurity. We have... We have oh, we invested all this money in the natural gas stuff and the shale in the eastern Ohio. All of those counties that produced all this natural gas have lost jobs in the last 10 years instead of gaining all these jobs that everybody promised them. I mean, broken promises, failures on every level in every policy area, pain and suffering for millions of families across Ohio. You're exactly right. When does the pain get enough? Well, I, or, or people leave, right? Which or people leave, uh, and they, and which the educated free to people do. are the people with means. They are, <clears throat> leaving, you know. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people who don't have the means to leave. Yeah, and that's you know that's kind of tragic. Especially when a lot of these things are just very fundamental American values. These aren't even partisan values. Representative government is an American value. What they're doing is un-American. It's anti-democracy. It's not a partisan issue. So help me understand this, David, because, um, and I guess I guess the uh, you know Tim Ryan campaign is as good a place to start as any. What do do if if these values are being um, 
are, are what Democrats are fighting for. And, you know, they are in state after state. How does a Democratic Party have to organize differently in Ohio? What if you I mean, I, I know you're a journalist and you're not a political operative, but what do you see that what is the state Democratic Party there? How are they functioning? Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I note the transformations that have been made in Wisconsin and Michigan with very strong organizer party leaders. Um, and I wonder yeah. what's going on in, in your state. Well, this is the first cycle that we've had with a new leadership at the Ohio Democratic Party. Um, unfortunately, you know, Tim Ryan performed the best and he's still lost by six. Everybody else um well, the Supreme Court candidates on the Democratic side, they did pretty well, too, but they still lost, you know, similarly to Tim Ryan. And then the executive office's candidates, you know, governor and whatnot, they really got steamrolled. And a lot of that had to do with voter enthusiasm. Uh, a lot of young people showed up in other states. Young people didn't show up nearly as much in Ohio. As far as we can tell, we're still waiting on some of those stats. Um but as far as the party itself and its infrastructure, there's a lot going on and a lot of people have different opinions. But I think you keyed in on one thing that I think is super important if any political party wants to be successful, because it's just one of those fundamentals. And that is organizing. You have to have really strong, robust, well-planned, well-executed organizing to be successful. One of the problems that Ohio Democrats face is that in order to have that type of really strong, successful organizing, I mean, they need so much money. They need a ton of money. They need more money than Republicans to even come close to competing with Republicans. And that is kind of an impossible situation because the National Party has basically written Ohio off, so they're not sending any money. And the unions aren't nearly as robust as they used to be, although they still do fund a significant portion. It's just not enough to compete with a lot of the pay-to-play special interest funding that Republicans have set up for themselves. So you kind of have this, you know, catch-22 situation where the only way to really be competitive is to have a ton of money. And the only way to have a ton of money is to be competitive. And they're kind of stuck with neither, you know. Well, I, I, uh... and, and that goes, that really goes to a problem, I think, fundamentally. Aside from gerrymandering, I think campaign finance is one of the biggest poisons in American politics. The role of money, the fact that. You can that thank the United States Supreme Court for that. You can absolutely, absolutely. thank the U.S. Supreme Court for that. Yep. Um, well, look, I, I mean, I don't want to write Ohio off. I really don't. It's a beautiful state. It's filled with wonderful people, and they definitely deserve better governance than they're getting. But um, Democrats have to do their job there. But, you know, I back when I was a very young person, you know, the, it was early in the, in the civil rights movement uh, leading up to the Voting Rights Act. And there were several states in the country where there where there was obvious, appalling, uh, uh, disparate racist treatment going on. And they were in the South and they, the Freedom Rides brought attention to those states. And the the 
anti-democratic, you know, I mean, the, the uh, actions in those states led to the creation of the Voting Rights Act. Um, it may be that Ohio is a state that gives, if we, if we let everybody know what's gone on there, as I say, the land that democracy yeah. forgot, um, it, may be, it may be that you're the example that helps the country remember what it values and will give uh, us what we need to um, overcome the opposition of Republicans and of the United States Supreme Court to craft voting rights legislation that will finally make a difference. Yeah, I, boy, you know, I... I mean, it's hard to want to be really, Mississippi in 1964, but when it comes no. to voting, Ohio's pretty close. That, but that national attention is key. You know, um, we really need it. And luckily, a couple people have done some really good stuff to highlight it. And I've I've talked to them as they researched Ohio. Jane Mayer from The New Yorker did a great piece this summer about the destruction of democracy in Ohio. Charlie Pierce from Esquire just wrote yesterday uh about what's going on with this ballot initiative stuff in Ohio based on mm -hmm. a column that I wrote. And so we're starting to see a little bit of national attention, but we need a lot more, you're right, to sound this alarm because this is a playbook. You know, Ohio could act, stand as this is how one party asserts authoritarian power over everything. This is the playbook they follow, you know. And yeah, they tried in Wisconsin, but Democrats stopped yeah. them. Um, it's very right. close, and they're still trying. But but so far, Democrats have held. But in Wisconsin, in, in Ohio, it uh, Ohio is an example of what the whole country could look like uh, should these autocrats prevail and be able to enforce to enforce to force upon all of us things that are not uh, that, that don't protect minority rights, nor are they popular. It's a uh, um, uh, it's an illegitimate kind of government and something that America has not seen in a long time. Oh, yeah, no. And it, it puts me in mind, honestly, and I, I touched on this in my column, but I want to read this quote because um, Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican, you know, and in 1912, he, he was running as a progressive candidate uh, against Woodrow Wilson and Taft. But he spoke at the Ohio Constitutional Convention about the importance of these citizen initiatives and referendum powers. And he said, Tell us what he said. A, a line that I think, I think he said something that really captures it. He said, I believe in the initiative and the referendum, which should be used not to destroy representative government, but to correct it whenever it becomes misrepresentative. Here again, I'm concerned not with theories, but actual facts and actual practice. It has been found in very many states. that The legislative bodies have not been responsive to the popular will. Therefore, I believe that the state should provide the possibility of direct popular action in order to make good such legislative failures. Yeah. I mean, that whole line, especially that part about misrepresentation and not using initiatives to destroy representative government, but to hold it accountable. I think that puts in stark relief the exact issue that we're facing here. And really, it goes to the heart of what American, the American Republic is supposed to be all about, you know. Um, well, and, and right. So and because of gerrymandering, 
voters can't hold elected officials responsible because the districts are drawn so their votes don't matter. So it's only at the exactly. state level that you can do this. And that's why that's why uh, your your uh, your guy, Mr. LaRose, wants to get rid of this power because it is a challenge. It is another power center that differs from the autocratic one that gerrymandering has created. Exactly. Yes. And they want to consolidate the last piece. They want to rip away from citizens the last pieces of power that they have. And and keep in mind, like their arguments make no sense whatsoever. They they claim that the Ohio Constitution is overstuffed with all these amendments from special interests. Well, that's not true at all. Over the last um over, over since 1912, when these powers were put in place, Ohioans have brought citizen constitutional amendments 71 times to the ballot. Only 19 of those have passed and 52 rejected. Mm-hmm. In the past 22 years, 16 have been brought to the ballot. Five were passed and the rest rejected. The citizens have been incredibly responsible with not overstuffing the Ohio Constitution. You know who has been? Ohio Republicans. They've been putting amendments into the Constitution <laughs> Three times the rate the citizens have. And so their arguments for this are just incredibly deceitful and duplicitous. And they don't make any sense because they're not honest arguments. They're trying to create an idea of a problem that doesn't exist. And they're doing it very clearly because they're worried about the possibility of future success for citizens to hold them accountable. Well, David, that's going to have to be, I think, our last word because we're at the bottom of the hour. I, I just want to note that the uh, Ohio Capital Journal, your your uh, your news outlet, is doing a, a very good job of keeping the public informed about these issues. And um, at least journalism still uh, is is still operating and not, um, you know, it has not been challenged by these guys yet. Um, I want to say. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a full forever employment act for journalists watching this. Yeah. So, I, you know, you're going to be busy, but thank goodness you're there. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on to talk to you about this stuff. Yeah, I appreciate really it. important stuff. All right, everybody. That was uh, David DeWitt, editor in chief of the Ohio Capital Journal from, as I say, the land that democracy has forgotten. And we need to do our bit to help them get it back. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to turn to uh, election and voting rights more broadly with The Guardian's Sam Levine. Stay tuned. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPD 820. Well, from time to time, I'm lucky enough to catch up with Sam Levine, who reports on elections uh, and voting rights for The Guardian. And uh, I talked to him yesterday. Here's what he had to say. Sam, um, Americans proved again that we're very good at holding large, free and fair elections. But you and I have talked now for, oh, I don't know, a little more than a year about efforts to enact laws that would disenfranchise voters, suppress voting, even allow local authorities to nullify elections. Were we unnecessarily alarmist? I don't think so. I think what happened in the midterms was a remarkable sort of repudiation of all the sort of election 
denialism that we've seen really festering in the United States um, over the last two years since the 2020 election. We saw candidates who, you know, openly questioned the election results, who staked their campaigns on overturning the 2020 election, lose their bids to become governors, to become the top election official in many states. And I think you know, that's a signal that, you know, voters really understood sort of the stakes of, of this and were, um, you know, not buying into it. Um, on your point about, you know, laws that make it harder to vote, you know, one sort of refrain that you hear is, you know, well, there was high turnout, there was record turnout. How can that be evidence of um, voter suppression? Doesn't that disprove voter suppression? And I think it's a little more complicated than that. You know, one thing that we'll never be able to measure is, you know, the obstacles and the hoops that people had to go through just to vote. The enormous amount of resource that people in Georgia um, and other places had to uh, put in to make sure that people understood new restrictions around voting, understood the new rules and got them out to vote. So I think it's a little bit more difficult to measure the effect of, of those laws. Well, so Sam, I take two things from that answer. One um, is I'm glad to hear it because I absolutely agree. We were not overly alarmist. I think those warnings mattered and they helped people organize and they gave some people um, even more reason to be concerned and to make extra efforts to vote. And the second thing I take from this is that while it's hard to measure the impact of the voter suppression efforts. There are some proxy measures that I think are legitimate, and those include how much time people have to wait to vote, right? And and we've seen in disparate disparate um, impact here uh, in Democratic um, places in Georgia, in particular, wait times of a couple hours were not uncommon. Aren't this week uncommon? Well, what we're seeing this week in Georgia, where there's a runoff for a U.S. Senate seat, is that there have been incredibly long waits at early voting sites in Fulton County, which is the biggest uh, county in the state. It's home to Atlanta. Um, Consistently, early voting sites in the county have posted wait times of upwards of an hour, uh, two hours. Um, This morning, I saw one site even was posting a three-hour wait in, in Fulton County, which you know, in, in voting, I think the gold standard is sort of 30 minutes or less is what you'd like to have at a polling place. You know, you're never going to have no lines at all. But clearly, when you're consistently seeing an hour, two hours, three hours at polling places, that's a signal that there are serious, serious issues. And in Georgia, you know, there are a couple issues that are kind of coming to the fore. One is that, you know, last year, as part of a sweeping new voting law, Georgia Republicans passed a measure that cut the runoff period in the state from nine weeks to four. So it made it much, much sooner after the general election. Um, And that just means that, you know, election officials, you know, there are 159 counties in Georgia. Election officials have much less time to prepare for the election. They have to find voting sites. They have to recruit poll workers. They have to make sure that all the machines are working, you know, all the equipment is up and running. And it also means that at the same time, you know, instead of having multiple weeks of early voting, all that is being condensed into 
you know, a few days. So it's putting much, much more pressure on the system. You know, there's very high turnout, which is contributing to those lines. Um, and, you know, the county is having trouble recruiting um, people to, to work the polls, understandably so, you know, after an exhausting sort of uh, election season and then the moment when election officials are under attack, you know, lots of people um, don't want to work the polls. So those three factors are all sort of combining in this very sort of dangerous way in Georgia and, and you know, producing those long lines. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it, right. Uh, so some of it is uh, accident, but it but a lot of that accident is bad decision making that led to, as you say, shortening the timeline without thinking about the consequences. And some of it is um, bad actors, the intimidation that has led so many poll workers just to quit. Right. I think we saw Georgia pass a law that sort of increased the pressure in a limited time of voting. It changed the voting period to just create a more sort of compact, pressurized election. And we're seeing some of the consequences of that play out in these long lines in Georgia right now. Sam, you've covered the nuts and bolts of this, the, the legislation and how it impacts voting. But there's something, I, you know, I don't know what the, what the word is, if it's Walt Whitman, it's mystery. But um, there's something about Americans voting that is that's powerful in a way that is almost impossible to put into words. And Democrats overcame obstacles to voting. They overcame efforts to repress the vote and they made themselves heard in the last election. And I just think there was something about that that led election deniers all over the, who ran for office all over the country and lost. And most of them, most of them, not, you know, Kerry Lake, but most of them conceded. They said, yep, I lost. I mean, and to me, they have gone from being election deniers to being patriots. They have they have affirmed that we can run free and fair elections at a time when that was the last, you know, the, our ability to do that was the last thing holding us together. Yeah, I think one of the most surprising things after the election was that many of these candidates you know, conceded, you know, most notably um, Doug Mastriano and mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, you know, who was a sort of leading election denier came out and, you know, to his credit said, you know, I lost the election. Um, the Tudor Dixon, the Republican governor candidate in, in Michigan, also conceded. Matthew DiPerno, attorney general candidate, who was a very prominent election denier, conceded his race. Um, and you know, I think that is significant. I think that, you know, we're not totally out of the woods with election denialism yet. I think, you know, right now we're seeing a lot of sort of continued efforts, especially at the local level, to try and slow down certification, to just try and sort of gum up the, the gears of the process that are supposed to officialize the election. And you sort of see local, you know, supervisors, you know, um, saying, you know, we have questions about the election, you know, we're not going to certify it. Um, and, you know, that's sort of happening in, in isolated instances after the midterm, but I think could sort of be a roadmap for what we could see across the country in 2024. 
Well, right. It didn't really get normalized, though. It's it's definitely an exception. I mean, let's talk about Arizona, because, you know, they're um, outgoing, outgoing Republican Governor Doug Ducey welcomed Katie Hobbs, the Democrat who won, said it was an, an election, said he would um, participate in transition, all of that important affirmation of the fairness and accuracy of the vote. But Carrie Lake, the Republican who ran, and Donald Trump, um, her her pal, are having none of it and still calling it a fraud. And I think they had um, two counties who refused to certify. But I, I but I, I think this week a judge ordered them to certify, and then they did. Is that right? Right. There was a Cochise County, uh, you know, which is sort of conservative county, was refusing to certify the election. And yesterday, a judge ordered them to to do so. Um, but, you know, Carrie Lake, the gubernatorial candidate, Mark Fincham, um, secretary of state candidate, both Republicans have have not conceded the race. They've, you know, sort of gone the route of saying there was fraud. We have questions about it um, and, you know, have not acknowledged their opponents. Um, the winner. And, you know, I think that is still very, very um, dangerous to see. You know, our, we live in a country where sort of the, the legitimacy of, of our government depends on the losers of elections accepting the outcome. Um, and we are not seeing that um, in, in Arizona. And just so we're clear, the county that they think is fraudulent is Maricopa County, which um, is run by Republicans. I mean, it was a Republican uh, election board that certified um, this election, uh, and I think unanimously. Is that right? Right. I think the the vote to certify the was unanimous. Yeah, and it's it, so 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 this it's shameful um, what these sore losers. Are doing, um, but I think it's less. It, it's still dangerous, but maybe la- losing some of its power just because of the. Again, I, I'm stuck at the words, the, the awesomeness of Americans voting. You know, uh, I don't think people continue to will continue to put up with this level of, oh, I was woe is me, I lost, so I must have been cheated, um, because many deniers. Um, caved under that pressure and acknowledged reality. Now there there are still holdouts, but I'm I'm hopeful on that score. Well, I guess we'll have to watch, right? We'll have to watch. Right, right. Um, I'm I'm far less hopeful on the gerrymandering score, and I wonder what you make of Ohio electing 15 people to Congress from districts that the Ohio Supreme Court said were illegal and they couldn't use. Well, I think what happened in Ohio with with redistricting is one of the most remarkable stories and alarming stories of the 2022 um, midterms. You know, just backing up, you know, Ohio voters in um, 2018 approved a constitutional amendment that set pretty clear guardrails around extreme partisan gerrymandering. It didn't take power away from lawmakers entirely, but set pretty clear rules about political fairness, about, um, you know, not favoring one party over the other that lawmakers were supposed to follow when they when they drew the maps. It it put a a panel of of lawmakers in charge of drawing the maps. And and 
the Ohio, this panel that, that drew the maps, which is comprised of lawmakers, Republicans have a majority on it, basically totally ignored those requirements. They passed a map that was struck down by the Supreme Court and basically just waited, waited it out um, so long so that a federal court, you know, basically said it's too close to the election. We're going to let you use your map. Um, Sam, let me interrupt you for one second. Uh, my yeah. understanding is the federal court told them they could use their map for state elections, but they did not say they could use them for the congressional elections. My understanding is that the, that the federal court allowed the um, map to go into effect for one federal um, election. Okay, it, I, I, I'm going to go. That, that's important to know. I'll double check that. That's really interesting. Okay. Okay. But basically, they waited it out and, and were able to sort of strategically game it out so that um, they were able to use this congressional map for this election. And, you know, basically that meant that Ohio voters went to the polls casting votes under a map that had been declared unconstitutional by the by the state Supreme Court and couldn't do anything about it. And it gave Republicans, you know, a clear sort of advantage going in. Democrats in Ohio wound up doing sort of unexpectedly well um, under that map. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think even though the map you know might get changed or, or tweaked later on, which I think is unlikely in Ohio, especially given that Republicans have now sort of solidified their power on the state Supreme Court, um, even, even if the map does get tweaked somehow to be sort of more fair, you don't get to undo elections and you won't get to undo sort of all the policies that that all the people who are just voted into office are going to help shape. So yep. Um, yep. I think that's very, very significant and, you know, sets out a roadmap for how you know state lawmakers can just sort of openly defy um, these guardrails on um, extreme partisan gerrymandering. And I think it strongly, strongly suggests that, you know, that there's a it's very difficult to reform gerrymandering in any way, as long as, um, you know, state lawmakers control the process of, of drawing the lines. Right. And the, and the federal courts are not open to these cases anymore. John Roberts walked away and said, you know, in a case a couple of years ago, we gerrymandering is not an issue for federal courts. Right. In 2019, the Supreme Court for the first time said, you know, federal courts can do nothing about partisan gerrymandering. It's not something that it's our job to police. And very significantly, he said, but, you know, one forum where partisan gerrymandering can be dealt with is in state courts. And that prompted sort of a wave of litigation, you know, following those instructions in state courts where people, you know, litigants brought challenges under the state constitution. They were heard by state courts. In some cases, maps were struck down. Um, but now there's a new challenge at the Supreme Court that's going to be heard on Wednesday um, that basically challenges that notion, basically saying that state courts and state constitutions also cannot police partisan gerrymandering. Basically, that when it comes to federal elections, so congressional districts, state legislatures have uncheckable authority to draw um, these districts. So it's basically taking aim at 
taking courts even further out of the practice of of policing partisan gerrymandering. Right. So so again, there were two two points in what you just said. I want to dig in a little more. Um, the last one. Um, this is the Alito and and others on the courts basically asking someone to bring them a new doctrine. This is the recently invented independent state legislature doctrine that you're talking about that says, oh, only state legislators have anything to say about elections. And if they rule that that doctrine's a real thing and they encode it into law, then, then elections will be the only thing in America that um, where there is no balance of power, where there are no checks and balances in a system that our framers created with obsessive care about checks and balances between the branches of government, between federal and state. They were overwhelmingly concerned with balance of power. This Supreme Court asked for and is now hearing a case that says there is no balance of power. There is one autocratic power only, only that will tell how elections are run. That's what's at stake here. Right. And I would just say that the theory only deals with federal elections, you know, state elections, you know, for offices mm-hmm. like governor, state legislature, you know, that there, that is not at issue um, in this case. You know, state courts still could, you know, check, uh, you know, rules around, around that dealt with state elections. But, you know, yep. sort of administratively, that would be a nightmare because many states, you know, have this exact same rules for federal and state elections. They run their elections simultaneously. So it, it could create this very, very potentially confusing system where you have different sets of rules um, for federal and state elections, which would be a nightmare for voters. It would be very difficult to run sort of administratively. Um, But the independent state legislature theory, this idea that state legislatures have uncheckable authority deals with, you know, their ability to set rules for federal elections. Right, right, right. Um, and And the other point that you made was, that Roberts's ruling in 2019 said state Supreme Courts are the venue for dealing with gerrymandering. But that leaves no power on earth that can deal with um, uh, lawlessness at the state level. And here I use Ohio as the example. The state Supreme Court said these maps are illegal and the legislature and the governor used them anyway. And there is no power to then enforce the law, the the uh, rulings of the Supreme Court. And, and um, I mean, rule of law as well as the democracy gets threatened when that happens. Right. I think it, it, it really would empower state legislatures to have this sort of awesome power that we haven't we don't really see other branches of government have in any context. I mean, unreviewable um, authority um, for for a state lawmaking body would, would mm-hmm. just be sort of a, an unprecedented um, exercise of, of power um, in the United States. Yeah, total break with our history. Okay, let's turn to, you know, just sort of in finishing my review with you of the things that happened last year and how they played into this election. Um, Florida created an election police force. You know, I thought that was a bizarre thing, but what, did that end up 
being meaningful in any way in this last cycle? Or did Florida taxpayers just pay a lot of money for nothing? Well, the most significant thing that happened with the police force is that in in August, Governor DeSantis had a press conference sort of loudly announcing that he was arresting uh, 19 people for voter fraud. Um, And these all 19 of these people had previous felony convictions. They were all for murder or a sexual offense, which means that they are ineligible to vote in Florida. Florida in 2018 passed a constitutional amendment that said, you know, you can vote once you finish your sentence. But if you are um, convicted of murder or sexual related offense, you are still permanently banned from voting because of your felony. So all of these people fell into that exception. And what very clearly came out in, in court papers that I reviewed is that Nearly all of the people charged had no idea that they were ineligible. Many of them said they had never been told that they were exempt from this amendment. They had heard about the amendment and thought that they were eligible. And they wondered, you know, they said, if I was ineligible, why didn't anyone tell me or try and stop me um, when I um, voted? There was no evidence that the state warned them that they were ineligible. In fact, it took the state several years in many of the cases to even recognize that these people had had gotten um, on the rolls. And the state had has not offered any evidence to date of how these people would have known that they were ineligible. Um, so, you know, when you when you have the governor sort of standing up, the press conference he held was very dramatic. It was in a courthouse in, in Broward County. He was surrounded by uniform law enforcement. And he said, you know, in, in remarks that were picked up by many news outlets saying, you know, these people will pay the price for voting. And I think there's no question that that sends a chilling effect. You know, many people who have a prior criminal conviction, you know, it can be very difficult to figure out, you know, okay, am I totally done with my sentence? You know, am I eligible to vote? And I think, you know, what I've heard from the advocates in Florida is that it's really led to this chilling environment where a lot of people are saying, you know, I'm confused. I'm not sure. I can't be certain. So, you know, I'm not going to risk it. And if the government can't even tell me for certain, if I can't rely on the approval from the government of whether I can vote, you know, why would I take a chance and, and risk, you know, being charged um, and potentially facing more jail time? Sam, so the government it's created a, chill. a chilling effect. Yeah, but the government of Florida yeah. registers people to vote, right? And and when you register to vote, they must do something to uh, ascertain whether they can register you. They have to figure out that you live in the state. They have to figure out that you're old enough. They have to figure out that you're a citizen. Surely they have to check all the boxes, including are you in a felony category that you're precluded from voting? And, And even if they got it wrong in the first instance, they regularly purge their voting rolls of people they think shouldn't be allowed to vote, don't they? Right. And the state has said, you know, I I think what happened in this case is that there was such a backlog. The state was so overwhelmed with, you know, trying to research, you know, the the status of of people who are registering that they weren't able to, you know, catch that these people had disqualifying offenses. You know, it should Mm -hmm. have been relatively easy to catch. You know, these are sort of the, you know, the 
there's a list of offenses that disqualify you and, you know, these people met them. But, you know, it took the state years to, to get down the list of people that they were reviewing to eventually get to, you know, flagging these people. So, you know, I think it really raises serious questions. You know, if, if the government can't even tell you with certainty whether you're eligible to vote, you know, if the government sends you a, a registration card in the mail and, you know, you're still eligible, you're, it winds up that you're still ineligible to vote, you know, is that really sort of your fault if you registered in good faith? You know, there's no evidence that these people deceived the government or, or lied about their status you know, yeah. on the form. So, Sam, have any of these people gone to trial? What's happened? Well, all the cases are sort of pending. There's been yeah. developments in three of the cases. One case was dismissed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a judge in Miami ruled that the statewide prosecutor, all of these cases are being handled by the statewide prosecutor, which sits in the attorney general's office instead of local prosecutors. So a judge in Miami said that the statewide prosecutor didn't have authority to bring this case. Um, in another case, um, it was dropped because it turned out that one of the defendants was going to jail um, for another unrelated offense anyway. And the, the prosecutor mm-hmm. said that they had obtained evidence that would make it harder to prosecute the case. And in a third case, a woman wound up taking a plea deal that basically you know, didn't result in any additional um, prison time or yeah. punishment. And I think, you know, when experts saw sort of the, the, the punish, you know, the, the results of that plea deal, you know, it's a signal that, you know, this is not a case that prosecutors think, you know, this is not someone prosecutors think are likely to reoffend or, you know, is this really serious um, offense if they're willing to offer sort of that kind of, of um, plea deal. But, you know, that's what happens in a lot of these cases is that the, the charges are sort of loudly announced. Um, as a way of sending a message, and then they're quietly settled because the cases are, you know, so flimsy. They're quietly settled with yep. very little punishment. Um, and and Sam, you know, that's it, a win. It, 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 no matter how you cut this, this so-called wanted police force, which was going to unveil uh, election-changing fraud that somehow the country was involved in, found nothing of the kind. They found a handful of former felons who who registered unaware of a technicality, none of which would have changed the outcome of any election anywhere, right? I mean, uh, this is something that Florida's election department could have done without a police force, It's without the governor's police force, I think. Right. I mean, right. There was a very good piece from the Associated Press, you know, looking at, um, you know, this force in in Florida. There have been similar units in Ohio and Virginia that have been created Recently, the Texas Attorney General's office has long had a unit dedicated to prosecuting election fraud, and none of these offices have been able to uncover any kind of significant fraud. Um, You know, there are isolated cases, people who are confused, um, but they never, um, either in this election or, you know, in previous elections, um, have have been able to find significant widespread. I think hopefully the political... Evil politicization, or polit- I can't say the word, of voting itself will go away and will let voters do their job. I have one, one, one more question for you in the time we have, which is just, um, you've been such a good guy to the uh, 
threats in this last cycle. Um, what do we need to pay attention to sort of now as we head into the next election cycle? Well, I think that we are going to see state legislatures come back into session, um, you know, next month. And I think that we will continue to see uh, legislatures continue to sort of chip away at mail-in voting in particular, continuing to, to you know, sort of the availability of things like drop boxes, um, you know, maybe restrict, you know, when ballots have to be received by um, uh, election offices in order to count. Um, I think sort of the, the wave of laws that we started to see, um, you know, that we've already started to see, I think that trend um, will continue. I think we should pay very, very close attention to sort of the strategy of efforts to delay certification in places like Arizona, like we talked about, also similar efforts going on in, in Pennsylvania right now to try and understand what it might look like, um, you know, in 2024 when, when there could be, you know, more organized or sort of widespread efforts to um, slow down that process with the goal of, you know, causing more confusion and chaos in the Electoral College vote and certification. Um, and lastly, I think, you know, as Congress has made some progress on passing reform to this very archaic law called the Electoral Count Act, which basically governs the counting of the Electoral College votes. And the goal of those reforms are sort of to make it much, much harder to prevent, to, it would make it much, much harder for another January 6th to happen. Um, and, you know, those talks had some momentum earlier this year. Congress is obviously going into a lame duck session, um, but it'll be very, very interesting to see if they can get that legislation passed um, before um, the new Congress takes takes office in, in January. All right, Sam, we will watch for those things. And I look forward to talking to you as the year unfolds and we have more, my words, not yours, nonsense that we're going to have to contend with as we go forward. Thank you so much. Thanks, Edwin. Happy to come on anytime. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. Okay, we're back. It is our last hour today, your hour. So get ready, 773-763-763. 9278 for those of you who want to join the conversation. And while you're thinking about what you want to talk about, what you want to say, I'm joined by Cameron Stevenson, managing editor of the Copper Courier, which is a digital newsroom in Arizona. He's been on before. We catch up from time to time about that state. And, you know, it was a pretty interesting time in that state. Cameron, welcome back. It is. Yes. Thank you very much for having me back, Edwin. Always, always good to talk with you. So, um, I have a lot to ask you about and stuff that should be of interest to those of us here in the upper Midwest. Um, GOP Governor Ducey affirmed the accuracy of the elections you just had and promised full cooperation during a transition to the Democratic Hobbs administration for governor. Right. Meanwhile, Carrie Lake and Mark Fincham are still whining. Um, so, So. First, I, I, I want to say about Governor Ducey, who I disagree with almost everything about. He's a patriot. Every single person who affirms the validity of American elections it, it is doing the country an enormous favor. 
right? I mean, it, it yeah. shouldn't be a huge favor to state the absolute obvious, but in the face yeah. of enormous lies, um, and particularly lies coming from his own party, I want to give him full credit for the patriotism he deserves, helping Americans understand that our democracy works. Yeah. But now, well, you know, it, oh, sorry, sorry, go on. No, no, no. Talk uh, about that, and then we'll turn to these other creatures. Yeah, no, I mean, for all of, all of his faults, that is definitely one thing that he has been able to stand by in this election and in 2020. Um, you know, he, he famously ignored a cell phone call from – uh, then President Trump, while he was certifying the election results, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he stood up from that. He got a lot of flack from it. Um, other people in his position get death threats and uh, and are harassed. And, and I assume for him, it's no different. Um, but he's also very, you know, very proud in our election process, very ha- proud in how we you know, operate democracy in Arizona and, and in America. Um, and for him, I think it's a little bit of pride, too, right? Like he's, he won the state twice. No problem, you know, very handily um, for someone to lose and then claim that they should have the same victory as him, as I would imagine it's, it's mm-hmm. a little insulting. Yeah. Yep. Well, he deserves I want to give him, you know, the, the important thing about American politics is that we can disagree about policy. We can disagree about values, but we have to agree that the democracy is the method through which we mediate those disagreements and move forward. And exactly. he's demonstrated that. And for that, he has my gratitude. Yeah, me too. On the other hand, would you remind those of us who live up here in the cold? Um, because very soon history will completely forget who they are, who Carrie Lake and Mark Fincham are and what they're saying. If we're lucky. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the hope. Um, cause I mean, Carrie Lake is now nothing more than a retired, um, local news anchor who ran for governor, um, has, you know, deli- denied the ele- results of both her election, which she lost in 2022 and the, the results of the 2020 election. Um, she has said so, uh, some of her policy that she wanted to push forward included, um, I believe taking water from the Midwest and pumping it to Arizona, um, harming uh, undocumented people who are coming into the country, uh, harming people who are experiencing homelessness, um, just a, a lot of violent, dangerous rhetoric that has resulted in small-scale violence and an increased um, divisive tone here in Arizona. And, and Mark Fincham is really, you know, he kind of paved the way for, for her. Um, he is seen by both Democrats and Republicans in the state legislature as incredibly inept uh, and unfit for, you know, working at the hot dog stand outside of the state capitol, let alone, you know, <laughs> being in charge of our elections. Um, and yet he was the, the Republican nominee. Um, he committed to not only somehow finding a way to reject the 2020 results, um, but him as well as, as Carrie Lake, you know, they were they were on the side that would have overridden the will of the people in 2024 um, and only allowed certification of Arizona's votes if it was for Republicans, um, which essentially ends Democratic rule. Yeah. All right. Well, let, they, they all sued. K- Carrie Lake et al. plaintiffs sued Katie Hobbs, defendant, um, and they sued thinking that they could at the last minute 
change the entire way voting is done, right? Mandate that it all be done with paper and pencil and um, count it all by hand. And, um, uh, and they made all kinds of allegations about how it's being run that weren't true. And the nice judge threw it out, told them, went through all the background and, and, and just put point after point said they were wrong and they were frivolous. And then they got countersued um, by the state, which said, you know what? This is all frivolous nonsense. They should be sanctioned. Right. That their, their lawyer should be sanctioned for wasting the court's time and they should be sanctioned for misconduct, for misrepresenting to the court so often. And and uh, federal court, federal court um, uh, for the District of Arizona ruled that, yep, they should be sanctioned. And I mean, I have the federal court document in front of me. Because it was fun reading. And I know for most mortals, reading federal court documents are really not that fun, you know. Um, but he says in it, sanctions should be imposed only in the most egregious situations, lest lawyers be deferred from vigorous representing of their clients. Right. And that is a standard that makes perfect sense because we want lawyers to be able to represent their clients. So obviously he went through and he found that this was a mighty exceptional uh, case, right? Because uh, it's yeah. a, the statute authorizes the imposition of sanctions against a lawyer who wrongfully proliferates litigation proceedings once a case has commenced it. And, um, and they found bad faith. I thought it was a remarkable ruling. Did you get a chance to look at it? Yes. You know, I, I agree with you completely. I think it's, uh, in a way, it's a very comforting ruling that these sanctions were put out. Uh, we've seen so many frivolous lawsuits, so many thrown out, um, you know, legal attempts to undermine our elections process and, and our you know, elected officials over the past several years that it's good to see that that courts are taking this seriously now that they're saying, you know, no, this, you know, this is frivolous. This You need to be held accountable for this, um, you know. Attorneys shouldn't be able to to put into question our most sacred institutions um, and face zero consequences for it. And, well, and, and I, the judicial system good. itself doesn't work if lawyers are allowed to go to court and lie and make up evidence. That's just not yeah. how, how. So, so the judicial system is protecting itself and protecting all of us by saying you can't come into my court and lie like you do when you go on Fox News. That's not the standard. It may be the standard on Fox News. It's not the standard in courts of law in the United States. Yeah. And, and I think that's something people really need to see. And, and I hope that they not only make this case into an example, but use it as a, a blueprint in the future. Because we've seen, you know, we've seen lawyers lie in court countless times um, and face no consequences. Um, and because it's in court and because there aren't any consequences, it, you know, it it gives legitimacy where there isn't any. Uh, and so I, I think that has also done a lot to, you know, fool people, for lack of a better term, uh, into thinking that some of these uh, accusations against our election systems are legitimate when they're not. Yeah, I mean, we, we've said, and, and I think everybody heard this, it was said on, on countless uh, television, radio, print, news shows, you know, Donald Trump lost Every case in court, he lost dozens, hundreds of cases around the country about, uh, you know, what happened in, in the votes, right? Lost all of them. But I think yeah. I, I think we haven't done our job because we haven't gone into a, enough detail about what it means to lose. So, for example, I just I think we need to 
read parts of this to people. They said that, you know, the, the Carrie Lake and gang, they met, they, they made all kinds of allegations, it says here, but they never put forth sufficient allegations about their systems, let alone sufficient evidence to support them. Later on, they say they were assuming all the things that they were meant to prove. They didn't prove them at all, um, but they just assumed them from the beginning. And then um, uh, I love this part. Plaintiffs sought to fill the gap between their assertions about Arizona's voting equipment and their speculative conclusions about its vulnerability with allegations that were false and misleading. And then they go through and explain how they were false and misleading. I I just think Americans need to understand they didn't just lose. The courts went through the evidence and found that they were lying and they were abusing the system. And that that, when they hear Carrie Lake out there saying what she's saying for entertainment value, it does absolute damage to our justice system as well as to our democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I think it is interesting that even though the court order only sanctions the lawyers, um, that they did leave it open to going after the candidates. Um, because, uh, you know, as far as I see it, they're just as, if not more so, uh, responsible for the damage that's being caused as, as the attorneys who are trying to defend their actions. That's a very important point, Cameron. And And when they discussed it in the brief, they made the point that, look, we're not saying they're not culpable in all of the uh, dishonesty here. But from the perspective of prudence, our job in these sanctions is to try and protect the courts from this again. So if we if if we make the lawyers pay, and which is what this sanction is, they have to pay the other side's legal fees. And so the, so the other side's now figuring out what their legal fees are and we'll submit it. And, and the, you know, uh, Carrie Lake's lawyers will have to pay them. The, the job for the courts is to is to deter any other lawyer from bringing this crap to court, right? And and that I think is really important. If no one will go, if no one will show up at court for Donald Trump, and so he can go back and say, oh well, we're we're litigating this. If no one will litigate it, it's just done. You can't keep playing that same tired game uh, forever. Right, right. And, and thank goodness that the that our, you know, Maricopa County and, and Arizona Secretary of State's office went to such great lengths throughout this election process to, one, keep our elections safe and secure, and two, to give, you know, to make information so accessible, to be so transparent in their process throughout yeah. everything. Um, you know, every single day they were putting out notices like, hey, it's, you know, this many days to election day, you have this many days to return, return your ballot. You know, here's where you can go to vote. Here's all the different options you have. Um, and, and the court mentions that in the in the brief, they they say that part of it is because the you know the attorneys were ignoring steps that Arizona had already taken to end false narratives, and yep. that they were baselessly undermining public trust in a time of di- increasing disinformation. Um, and, and so it's you know which totally goes against you know Carrie Lake's narrative, Mark Finch's narrative, that our elections officials are inept, corrupt, and um, and unfit for the job and none of which is true and so so as as a as the uh upper midwest democrat that i am let me say about the republican uh uh leadership in maricopa county and the republican election officials in maricopa county bravo you did you did a really you did a good job uh, in, in the face of extreme pressure 
So, yeah, I, I so, mean, I, I couldn't imagine yeah. what, they're, what they've been so going will, through. So will sane Republicans get their party back in Arizona, the, the rusty bowers of the world? People with whom I, again, disagree with on policy, but at least they understand the role of democracy. Will they get? Will, will they be able to get their party back in that state, or is it lost? It's tough to say right now. Um, I mean, there's, as you can see, you know, Carrie Lake is, and, and Kelly Ward, who is um, the, Republic, the, the chair of the Republican, Arizona's Republican Party, they are not doing any sort of, you know, postmortem, any sort of self-reflection. They're attacking, denying, and, um, and continuing to push their extremist rhetoric. And so in that sense, it doesn't look like they are going to give up power anytime soon. Um, we also got the, you know, they assigned the Repu- Republicans uh, kept control of the state legislature and they gave, you know, election deniers, um, committee chair appointments over our elections department, you know, elections. Wendy Rogers. Yeah, Wendy Rogers. Uh, Wendy Rogers, and, and so, the grifter fundraising to yeah. overturn the election on day one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, someone who in a in a safe seat raised more than I think everyone else in the legislature combined, um, and then funneled most of that money into her son-in-laws or, or a, a very close relative's um, consulting company. But but appointments like that, where you are then taking these people with extreme stances and putting them in positions of uh, you know of great power and responsibility in our capital. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't really signal to me that the uh, you know the, the Jeff Flake or the you know the Reagan era Republicans are uh, anywhere near a point of um, yeah. taking back control here for their party. Well, as as somebody said earlier on this show, the way to get a political party to change is to keep making it lose. So I assume <laughs> that Republicans who want their party back, sane Republicans, people who believe in a, that America should have a right of center party as well as a left of center party. And I'm one of them. Uh, So Democrats and those Republicans both have a shared interest in making sure that this cretinous anti-democratic group loses again and again and again, as they did in the last three elections. Yeah, they've proven to be very unpopular candidates. Um, Of course, they will, you know, the, the ruby red areas where they don't have any opposition, um, but one would hope that the majority would rule and prevail uh, and be able to um, to bring some sense back into to that party. Do I let me ask you about the dynamics of the of the uh, governor's race that just finished? Carrie Lake is an electrifying campaigner. She's articulate. She reads her audience well. She's poised. Uh, she's deeply experienced um, uh, uh, communicating in front of a camera, um, uh, steals every room she's in when she does it. Um, and the incoming governor was a little timid about all of that, wasn't really as good at that kind of campaigning and, and didn't debate. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so, so all of those things that that people think about voters, that they are easily fooled by the flashy candidate, that you know, that all we care about is our appearances, that, you know, the attractive candidate always wins, that somebody who has a, you know, a, a really sharp message is always going to beat somebody who's more nuanced and um, and thoughtful. It turns out Arizona voters had a different a- answer to that. Yeah, no, um, 
<laughs> Thank goodness. And it took us about a, a week to see the results in, in full. But, um, but yeah, um, it turns out the Arizona voters, uh, despite hearing Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake's name in their homes for 20 plus years, and despite her completely, I would say, um, you know, manipulating and owning the, the local media sphere and mm-hmm. maintaining being on camera, being there, continuing to be, you know, in the news every night as she was campaigning. Um, if you're not saying something of value, then no matter how many words you get out, it doesn't mean much. And I think that's what people saw. Um, she didn't have viable plans. She didn't have realistic solutions. Um, and, and the thing about, about Katie Hobbs is, you know, she, she may not be a, a polished on camera, you know, work a crowd kind of person, um, but she's never lost an election. Uh, and she's really, she has a great record. She's done. Yeah, she's yeah, really uh, a, a great public servant. Yeah, she, I mean, she's done. She's done an incredible job in the offices she's held. Um, she won statewide as a Democrat in 2018, um, which, which was you know the beginning of you know I would say our our turn. That was when Cinema won. That was when we we won one other statewide election. Um, but it was harder then than it was in 2020. Um, and then ever since then, she's been getting death threats. She's been getting harassed. Her family yeah. has been getting threatened. Um, and so I think as much as it was her style of campaigning to be more with people one-on-one, um, I think a lot of it was also out of safety concerns. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to have a big open event where everyone's invited when that morning someone threatened to put a bomb in your car. Um, yeah. And so I, I think I, th- I think that just also goes to show that those kind of events are, are good for egos, uh, but, you know, about as useful as street signs. Uh, they they don't win elections. It's getting out, talking to voters, giving them policy that they care about, and and having answers to their questions, and not just stoking fear, um, which is what Carrie Lake did. Love that. Okay, I want to turn to something you and I talked about last time, which I'm, I'm going to ask my audience to forgive us for going here. But you have an interesting little regulatory body called the Corporate Commission. And last yeah. time we talked, there was a really interesting race where you had an environmentalist um, who wanted to use that job to help the utility companies enter the century that now is more than 20 percent over and start to do green energy. And you had somebody else say there should be no regulation at all of any company, no matter what. If they want to burn coal, let them burn coal. What happened in that election? Uh, unfortunately, the latter candidate won. Um, wow. The, yeah. Well, and what's what's what hurts even more is that there was a, another Democrat who was running for re-election, um, who was also you know pro alternative energy, pro solar, um, who had been in the office maintaining the minority. Uh, she lost as well. And, oh, that is and really so that, that's really sad. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's difficult to see. Uh, it's very frustrating because. Um, the like our utilities here, you know, they're they're privately run but regulated by this public um, corporation commission. Um, but these these utilities are hated. Um, they do very shady things. They raise rates without reason. Um, they you know they have cut off people's power to the point in the summer where people have died of heat stroke. Um, you know, it's in it, it, public opinion is very much against these these companies. Um, but for whatever reason, that doesn't 
tie back in people's in voters' minds to the Corporation Commission, which could actually regulate and mandate changes to make our our utilities more equitable and uh, more efficient and more green um, in ways that we desperately need, especially as a state that is, um, you know, running out of water very quickly. Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess that's that's uh, fodder for our next conversation. You know, we can talk about sort of environmental stuff in this in this state. Um, because I think we'll have a little bit of a breather before we actually have to talk about elections so we can talk about uh, government. Yeah. And, I, and I, I'm really clear about this with people who listen, Cameron. Governing is hard work. Um, yeah. And, 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 and making our country better requires people who are, who are determined to do that hard work um, and, and has consequences when people don't. So I, I look forward yeah. to talking to you about what's going on in your state, just from the governing perspective, from the hard work, what decisions are being made, and how it's either helping or harming the good people who live there. Definitely. That sounds wonderful. Um, and there's going to be a lot of, of interesting new policy, a lot of interesting proposals on, on how to govern. You know, we'll, we'll have a, a Democratic governor uh, with a very slim majority Republican legislature, um, you know, the Republicans are up one in both chambers, but one Republican has already said, uh, and I won't get too much into it, but she's, a, I guess, a true believing election denier who doesn't even think the results of her election are accurate. Um, so she has, she has promised that she will not vote for anything um, until we re-canvass the, until we redo the 2020 election. So that kind of kills the Republican majority in that chamber. Um, the other one, the other chamber has some, more um, moderate Republicans that will give opportunity for compromise and bipartisanship. Um, so while there are extremists at the helm, uh, I'm hopeful that there's still an opportunity for um, progressive change to happen in the coming years. Well, that is, that is the happy note I'm going to let you go on, Cameron. I mean, as always, thank <laughs> you for coming and, and sharing a little bit of that uh, Southwestern uh, sunshine up here in the wintry upper midwest hey anytime i i enjoy talking with you it's great great to be here again take care all right everybody we are going to take a one more break and then seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight i want to know what's on your mind you're looking at the big picture with edwin eisentraff on wcpt 820 well, as you know, it's time for your calls at 773-763-9278. I know some of you have me on speed dial. Others of you uh, have to push the buttons. And maybe a few of you still have a rotary phone. But if you do, I really want to know about it because <laughs> I haven't seen that in a while. Um, uh, really interesting. You know, I, I today is um, – is the, I believe today, December 2nd, is the anniversary, December 3rd or 2nd. One of those days is the anniversary of the execution of John Brown for the attack at Harper's Ferry uh, before the Civil War. He was convicted of treason because he, um, you know, led an armed insurrection against an American facility, even though many people thought uh, his cause was just, convicted of treason. Just keep that in mind when you think about uh, January 6th, which is second anniversary, which is coming soon. 
Uh, all right, let's get to your calls. Um, Jim, hello there. Hi, Edwin. How are you? I'm just so tired of sore losers that I can't take it much longer. The old axiom when I was a child, it wasn't whether you won or lost, it's how you played the game. That was the important thing. And this is a democracy. We want to encourage everybody. This is, this is the game. This is the game of democracy. We want as many people to vote as possible. If we lose, we do it genuinely, and we walk away. This is getting so tiresome that I can't even describe it. Uh, I listened to that uh, Carrie Lake from uh, Arizona with her nonsense that the, the ballot boxes were stuffed. They were stuffed. They were stuffed. We have to get back to some sense of uh, genuine uh, civility in the country. And that's, and that's can, can encourage everyone in the country to vote and make it easier to vote and so on. And you have a great weekend, Edwin, and thanks a million, Bill. Bye-bye. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you for uh, – uh, uh, oh, gosh, you know, caring enough. I mean, I haven't heard, like, how you play by the rules in a long time. And you certainly don't didn't see it. Uh, amongst the Cary Lakes of the world. George, what's on your mind? Oh, thank you for taking my call, Edwin. Uh, just Pleasure. two quick points. The uh, first being um, your your guest who was just on was talking about some right-wing kook politician in Arizona who was advocating for the diversion of water from our part of the country to his. And it's just so typical of right-wingers that they only know what they know and they only know what they want and they don't give a darn about reality. The reality is that the United States and Canada have been party to a treaty since 1913 called the Great Lakes Compact, which does not allow the diversion of any water outside the perimeter of the Great Lakes Basin. The only exception is here in Chicago because the I&M Canal and the Sanitary and Ship Canal predated the, the the compact. So if they ain't got enough water out there, then some of them can move because there's too many of them in Arizona. Anyway, um, I refrain from expressing this during the campaign because Democrats uh, need to support each other. We don't need circular firing squads, but I really think that state treasurer Sarah Godlewski, if she'd been the candidate for Senate in Wisconsin, she'd be going to Washington in January I just think there's only so much capacity in our electorate, unfortunately, and I hate this, to elect black men who have foreign-sounding African names. You know, we were able to get away with a Barack Obama for two terms, but then there's a whole lot of white voters who just can't stomach voting for somebody named Mandela. No, no matter how noble Mandela, you know, uh, President Mandela of South Africa was. It's just the the reality of the racism in our culture. Okay. Um, uh, on the first point about water, uh, yeah, we're going to – the Great Lakes Compact is a wonderful treaty, um, and uh, they're not getting our water. So that's just – on the other point, um, I would put it differently. I mean, there's definitely still racism amongst the electorate, but Mandela Barnes beat every possible uh, uh, expectation. And remember, every single sitting U.S. senator who ran for re-election won. And the worst senator in the United States, and who was, of course, uh, in Wisconsin, also had enormous amount of resources to spend 
So I, I'm not sure anybody could have done better. And, and, and you know, the Republicans are good about hating whoever they're running against. They, they, um, uh, there's plenty of, of, of reluctance to elect women in America. There's plenty of reluctance to elect anybody that they don't like. So I, I, I don't want to make any concessions to their bigotry. And please consider this. Mandela Barnes uh, also brought lots of people to the polls who helped elect Governor Evers, who helped elect Democrats up and down and across the state. So I, I, I don't know if you're right. I hope uh, you're not right. Um, um, Sarah Godlewski is a terrific candidate, and, and she's done a really good job. But I think they're both terrific candidates, and I just don't think we could have run much better campaign. And had anybody else been running, we might not have won those other races. So I, I, I'm grateful to him for what he did. And, um, and you know, I don't want to pick on us for losing a very, very hard race. You know, he came so close. But, I, well, you, you know, know your just, point about racism is a fair one. Yeah. I, my, my hope is, is that um, what you had to say is more correct than what I had to say, because you, your version is, is so much more optimistic in terms of the future. Um, so we'll just, you know, this election's over. It's time to start looking toward the next time one. To start the next which, one. Yep. Which is... You know, this is one of those hideous ironies of our politics. The six or seven senators in the United States Senate, Republicans all, who voted in favor of the seven sick days for railroad workers, guess who? Guess how many of them are up for re-election in 2024? I can't imagine any. All of them? Oh, well, good. Good. You see, voter, so, it matters. The public is, you know... <sighs> Well, like I said, I, you know, George, I am an optimist, and, um, uh, you know, we don't win all the time. We just heard about losing those utility elections in Arizona. We, that's No one wins all the time. I think the last election we have so much to be proud of. Anyway, I'm going to move on, but thank you for calling. And, Paul, you're thank next. You. you bet, George. Paul? Yes, Edwin. Hi. Thank you. Um, so with regard to the voting rights, uh, in the court. This is what we've, this is what the MAGA movement and the Trump era has done to the court uh, by, by hook and by crook or in stacking the courts or whatever. They've been attempting and are actually having some success in converting our, our courts from courts of law to courts of equity. And uh, you remember there was a once uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. When a, when a plaintiff said, this is a court of justice, he said, no, this is a court of law. Court of law. Courts of equity, as you sometimes read in the Constitution, were courts from old England that made injunctions. They, they made rulings to tell you to, to stop doing something. Courts of law made rulings about uh, damages. What did you do? And, and what was the cost of the other person? What the cost of the other party? What the MAGA right wing are doing is if you remember all of the cases that the Trumps, the Sidney Powell, and they all brought to court after the 2020 election, there was no adversary. See, our, our system is an adversarial system. There's somebody, an you have to have an opponent, and the court is supposed to be a neutral arbiter. What they came to court with was saying, 
We are confounded. We are outraged. We don't have an opponent, but there's something fishing here. It's up to you to figure it out and give us an injunction. Make an injunction based on our outrage. That's what they're doing. There's no opponent to give counter evidence. And so they just make it up. So they're, they're counting on that there should be the courts are to have injunctive power to say, and what they want is stop the counting. Or this is what they did in the, by the way, in the 2000 election, stop the counting. That was what the, that was the opening of the floodgate. Stop the counting in Florida. That's an injunction. The Supreme Court acted as a court of equity and issued a, a, a unprecedented injunction against the state of Florida. And this is what they've decided is their, is their cause because they don't have an opponent. If you want to claim voter fraud, then you have to say, here's who, here's who is responsible. Here's who I'm bringing to the court. And he, here is the fraudulent. Here's the propagator of fraud. This is who did it. This is the elected, the worker, whoever did it that I'm accusing. And here's the evidence that they did so. But they don't want to do that because they don't have it. So they're just coming to the court to say, we are outraged. My, I, we are so confounded and outraged that you must overturn until we can figure this out. You see, because and so there were courts of equity in old England. For instance, here's an example. Uh, you water your cattle in the stream up, upstream from me. My water is foul. I take you to the magistrate and say, tell him to stop watering his cattle in the stream. Bring the water up from the stream to water your cattle because you're following my water. And the magistrate says, yes, you will stop ordering. Edwin, you will stop watering your cattle in the stream. You will bring water to your cattle. And that's, a, that's an injunctive uh, court of order. But, see, there's no law here. There's no, they're not acting as plaintiffs. They're acting as outrage, just whatever. And the courts are now catering to this. And the example, the next point, because this is point two, is in these in this next case is Moore versus Harper, which I think they are hearing next week. Uh, the court and the Voting Rights Act cases, like uh, 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 Merrill versus Milligan in, in Alabama, which they heard a few months ago in the beginning of October, I think. The court should have known and exercised an abstention doctrine to say we won't hear this, and why? Because when you're talking about race and voting rights, the, the Voting Rights Act was enforced by Clause 2, Section 2 of the 15th Amendment. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article with appropriate legislation. It is a giant flag to the Supreme Court that says this is not subject to judicial, judicial review. But what, what laws Congress makes about this are none of your damn business and not what john roberts thinks that's right and you know what the court has an abstention doctrine about what is called a political issue and they say that a political issue is one in which one the branches of government have not come to a constitutional impasse yet and so the the quintessential case is carter versus goldwater 1980 it was about the uh indochina um uh, uh, it was a treaty, protection treaty, and what the court ruled in that case was that it was still a political issue because both 
the Congress and the executive branch had not fully exercised their political options. So Mm -hmm. it was still a political case. Now I I have this, I have this question for you, Edwin. If, if the, the section two of the voting rights act is still a political question, in other words, so we, the, the, the court says, oh, yeah, we recognize a political issue between the Congress and the executive branch. How will the court ever, ever recognize a political issue between the Congress and the court? And the well, they don't. Branch? I don't think they, they don't. ever will. They don't. They don't. Will they? They will never get up well, to power, right? Not, not this court, for sure. Um, no, not this court. But this court, you've heard me say this before, and I know you agree with it. This is not a legitimate court. This is a a, a, a packed political court that um, was packed by um, uh, Mitch McConnell um, mm-hmm. in, in ways that broke with all of the country's traditions about how the court uh, is is how the court members are chosen. But it, but more than that, um, it, it, the selection. Um, by the Republicans through the Federalist Society was an effort to capture the court, to make it about outcomes, not about judicial process, not about law or justice or equity, but about outcomes, outcomes that were wanted by the right outlined in the Powell memo. It is, it is absolutely a danger to our liberties. And I uh, um, won't rest until we have a court that will protect us rather than uh, dictate to us. Amen, brother. <laughs> Amen. All right, well, as always, uh, your uh, legal education is very helpful to me, and I hope to everyone who's listening, Paul. Um, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, and we'll talk soon. I did, and I, I, I'm so glad to have you back. Uh, we had we had a weekend off, but I was itching to hear you again today. Thanks, Paul. All right, let's. Um, um, Ron, you're next. Yes. I'm here. Hello, hello, Ron. Yes, yes. Um, I don't think uh, Kim McCarthy will be in this next House Speaker. There are there are five Republicans in the House who said they were they would never vote for him. So is it possible that the uh, 20 moderates in the House and Democrats will pick somebody on their own? It's possible. I think it's not likely. I think there will be. Um, Many rounds of voting, which has happened in the past in our history. Um, I don't think the well, I I would love it if the Democrats were able to forge a deal with sane Republicans for House leadership that lets us move forward on some of the issues that still matter to America. And I hear I'm thinking of voting rights and, you know, um, uh, and gosh knows uh, choice and, and, you know, things that that matter to most Americans, but I, I just, this rabid Republican core um, is determined to hold the party. I think it still does really control the Republican party. And Kevin McCarthy um, is, you know, flying back as fast as he can to Mar-a-Lago to see if he can't uh, get uh, uh, Donald Trump to help him corral those who say they won't vote for him. Because remember, the ones who won't vote for him, are, 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 you know, they're not in the center. They're on the right. And so they're, he's moving in that direction. And I, I think if the ones in the center would walk away from that travesty, that, that thing that's ruining their party, 
it would be a great sign, but I have no evidence that they have the backbone to do it. But you know what? I, I, the, the House Democratic leadership, um, the new leadership, as well as, as Mrs. Pelosi, and, and, and who's still there, they, they are very smart, and they have done a remarkable job of leading. If they can pick off a couple Republicans, they will. Um, uh, but you know what? Uh, anything is possible. There are no precedents that matter to these guys. You know, they could easily uh, – I mean – what do they do? You know, I wouldn't put it past them to nominate Kanye for all of his hatred as their speaker and try and vote him in from right because it doesn't have to even be a House member. Maybe they're just you know they're not serious about governing. They haven't been serious about governing. They've told us after campaigning that the economy was important to them. They've said, yeah, no, we don't care about that. We just want to find Hunter's laptop and and talk about what might be there. You know, this is not a serious bunch of people. So anything that you can imagine that could come out of a clown car could come out of this crowd. Yeah, they, they said they want to start. Uh... 40 or 50 investigations. So every, so every day will be a circus. Well, yeah, it, it'll be a circus, but you know what? Um, it, in a couple of years, Americans will see what Democrats did with a tiny majority, a tiny majority, right? Tied Senate and a, and a, and a very, and, and a majority no bigger than the Republicans will have, um, we passed legislation, some of it bipartisan, but we passed legislation that really is changing Americans' lives for the better. The Inflation Reduction Act is misnamed because it does so much more than that, right? It's a huge benefit to the environment. That, um, and between that and the infrastructure bill and the CHIPS Act, we are seeing a resurgence in American manufacturing that's going to be good for our balance of trade. It's going to bring down the deficit. Um, um, at, all of this is remarkable legislating. We're bringing down the price of me- medicine for so many Americans. All of this, we did. We did it with a tiny majority. And Americans are going to see that. We're going to remind them of that. And they're going to see the clown show, right? They're going to see, oh, but there's Hunter's laptop. And, oh, my gosh, somebody's gay. And wait a minute, there's, people want to come to America. There's immigrants because people want to come to America. You know what? <laughs> I just, we, they lost the election. Uh, uh, they lost the midterms when Trump was president. Then Trump lost. And in this last election where they should have won in a landslide, they lost again. You know, with some wins in the in the House that matter, but they really they, they were expecting a much bigger victory. So they've lost three times in a row because they refuse to take the job of governing seriously and would rather just divide us, scare us, yell at us, investigate us, misuse government, do those things that make them happy. But but it isn't going to make them. I mean, Americans are too sensible. You know, we get some things wrong, but mostly we get things right. So I think. Right. You keep telling everybody this is what they're going to do. We'll see where it gets them. Okay. Thank you. All right, Ron. Thank you. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. All right. Um, uh, what do I want to – oh, Roosevelt's here. Roosevelt, waiting for the last oh, minute again. 
Yeah, double E. Hey, listen, first of all, have a holidays, fantastic holidays to you and yours. Thank you. Same to you. Really appreciate that. And I wanted to talk about how the right, this particular clowns, and I'm going to add to the clown show here. And that's the other two clowns, Nick Fuentes and uh, Kanye West and uh, Alex Jones. Did you see the video where he said that the Nazi, he he, he loves Jewish people, but he also loves uh, Hitler and the Nazis. Did you happen to see that? I tuned in kind of late, so I don't know. No, (laughs) no, I didn't see it. And why would I? And let me tell you, I want you, I recommend that you see it. He's got his face completely covered. You know those? Uh, Iron, a balaclava. Yeah. You know, like like when you go rob a bank, you know, those type yeah. of things. But he doesn't have yeah. the holes for the nose, the eyes, and the mouth. Yeah, ba- it's called a balaclava. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so when Trump was thrown from Twitter, the right went crazy. Now. I believe Elon Musk threw uh, Kanye West out again for putting well, out. It, it, it was like a six-hour suspension. Yeah. So he wasn't removed. He got a he got a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I know. But what I'm saying is, what I'm getting at is the right. You know, they're uh, trying to. They said that they're trying to prevent the. Uh, like Trump from uh, exercising his First Amendment and so on and so forth. But I didn't know this, and I don't know if you know this. Nick Fuentes was at the insurrection January 6th. Did you see the video of that? He had a blowhorn. He had a blowhorn, and I can't quote quote him uh, word for word, but uh, he said something to the effect that uh, Pence failed him and uh, he basically started that whole nonsense of uh, of uh, Pence uh, trade uh, was a traitor and all this and that and and they failed and then he just basically repeated the words that that uh, uh, Trump put on Twitter saying that it was basically Pence's fault Pence's fault for not uh, stopping the count so. Uh, well, they're going, you know, history, uh, I think they are, I think the country will never choose Donald Trump for anything. Um, his, his, his statement today that the Constitution should be suspended so he can be president um, yeah. is, you know, I think he's just lost his mind. Um, I don't know how much he's not. I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, something came to mind, and that is that judge that uh, gave him the leeway of uh, uh, running out the clock, that Cannon judge. Yeah, she got her that? clock cleaned. Yeah, what did you think about that? You think that she's going to be uh, reprimanded for any? Well, the, the any court, that she got? A, re- a Republican court, but I want to be fair, a Republican court um, fully uh, overturned her stuff and wrote that she was absolutely wrong on the law in every way. It says, it says for a judge to be told by the, uh, you know, the uh, appellate system that basically mm-hmm. you're an idiot um, is, is a pretty serious reprimand. I mean, I, I, I think it's, a, she's going to be, you know, the disgraced judge. 
Um, but it, you, but what I'm happy about, Roosevelt, is that our, our legal system, notwithstanding that some of Trump's appointed judges, not all of them, but some of them like her, um, are are outrageous and incompetent, um, and, um, and, and that our Supreme Court is not legitimate for reasons that we've discussed a lot. But by and large, our court system is holding and doing its job. And they did it with her, and they did it with Stuart Rhodes, who will be in jail for the rest of his life and the rest of my life. When, you know, when I finally uh, go to the great polling booth in the sky, <laughs> he's still going to be in jail. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think we're going to get uh, Donald Trump, too. I, I think the justice system is moving slowly but firmly. Um, yeah. uh, and, and, and that's the way it should be. It's the way it should be. And uh, what do you think about, oh, I can't think of the gentleman that uh, Mary Garland put in charge. I mean, they're going crazy over there on the right one. Uh, what's his name, Jack? What's his name? Yeah, Smith. Smith, yeah. So there's anyway, a special, so- they, they put in place a special, they put, you know, that they, they uh, Merrick Garland said, okay, look, we got two candidates who say they're going to run for president and the optics are terrible. I guess, you know, as the, yeah. the Justice Department, I should get it, somebody independent in here. So they did. Um, but the guy they got in, he's, he has a track record of being serious. And, um, I trust that Merrick Garland has made a wise choice here. Um, uh, you know, it's possible that if he decides there's not enough evidence, to indict uh, uh, Donald Trump or or any of his m- other minions, then um, I guess we'll have to trust it. But I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, uh, Mark Meadows now has to testify. That's going to be terrible. I'm sure he's going to do nothing but plead the fifth. Um, you know, this is going to take a few more years before we get all of them. But, uh, you know, in fairness, this was a rebellion against the United States. It's going to yeah. take a while for us to get everybody who was involved. Um, yeah. uh, but we're going to I get them. Go ahead. I tell my mom the same thing because she wants things to, you know, this guy's still walking around. That's what her mom says every week or every other week. And I say, well, justice moves slowly, but you know, you got to be sure what you're doing. Otherwise, you lose the, you lose the, the, the fish that you got on the hook. Yep. We need we need our justice system to be fair as all as it can be. But but decision after decision after decision is closing the net on on yeah. the insurrectionists who caused this problem. Um, and we're we're winning these cases and we're taking it seriously. And look, the public's doing its job too because while the courts are holding them to account. Um, and holding their lawyers to account. I mean, a group of lawyers for election deniers just got sanctioned this week in Arizona. While the courts are doing their job, the voters are doing our job, right? We threw them out. And they tried to come back and we said the door is closed. You know, yeah. that's us doing our job. I'm proud of us. Well, Double E, thank you very much. Great show as always. And sidebar. That guy knows a lot of stuff, man. Yeah. All right, Roosevelt, that's the last word. I've run out of time. Thank you you so much. Everyone, thank you. Um, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving and uh, will be well rested over the holidays and ready to start up again. Take care, everyone.